This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Composite Two-Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast with a couple of one-star hosts, Chris 10K Trevino and Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Part of the USCfootball.com podcast family. The Cilantro Boys talk about everything from commitment breakdowns, game analysis, old recruiting stories, and, of course, some unsubstantiated rumors. And now, here are your hosts, 18K and Gerald. Welcome back to the Composite Two-Star Recruits. I am your one-star host, Chris 10K Trevino, and I'm joined by Hurricane Martinez. This is a little bit of a throwback episode because, Gerard, there is daylight coming into the studio. This is not a nighttime episode. USC decided to have a little bit of a scheduling change with their practice. They didn't make players available after Wednesday practice, so I was like, I'm not going to go down there to literally watch six minutes of them stretching, so I didn't go to practice got to the studio, and now we're going to do a daytime episode, Gerard. How does that feel? Sounds good. It's for the day walkers. So we're not nocturnal. Hopefully we will be more on the ball, more alert, and less sleepy and tired, and uh, we can give you the type of energy you expect from the two-star composite recruiting podcast. Gerard's ready. He's not even in the garage. He's still... Inside the house, so I'm sorry to disappoint that, no, he is not in the garage. He's not Garage Martinez this afternoon, but still, he's going to bring that same type of energy. Gerard, I do have to ask very quickly, last night was obviously Halloween. Were you out on the town being chaperoned to trick-or-treaters? I have to know. This is Halloween. This is Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. No, uh, I was inside uh, (laughs) chaperoning the dog. Uh, as uh, <laughs> candy was being handed out because she oh, you were was, giving uh, out candy. She was acting the fool. Uh, no, not not directly. No, I had to make sure that the dog was not handing out candy and uh, basically making a run for the door. So she's she's a big dog and uh, she loves people and she wants to greet everyone when that door opens. So <laughs> there needs to be someone between the door and her. And uh, that was me. And that basically became my night. So I was doing uh, target lists and I was uh, keeping the dog chill. That was that was basically my job as the kids ran rampant around the neighborhood, collecting Kit Kats and baby Ruth's. And uh, it was a party, man. The My block is very uh, excited about Halloween. Uh, the guy down the street actually makes hot dogs. And oh. gives out like chili dogs and all kinds of stuff. Has like a basically like a barbecue uh, for the trick or treaters, and so it's hopping. I mean, my block is pretty hopping when it comes to Fourth of July hot. and Halloween. 
uh, for sure. Yeah, there's there's definitely uh, and everybody knows it because we get a we go through like three, four bags of, of candy. <laughs> yeah, I went through about three and a half bags of candy and my neighborhood was also very jumping. There was a house on our block or in our neighborhood that was giving away jello shots for adults. There was a house uh, a little bit down the ways that actually set up like a creepy haunted maze in their front yard and there was like a line of like that ran like 15 minutes deep just to get in it was insane and then there was a house that was giving away full-size candy bars for uh interesting and cool costumes so yeah it sounds like your neighborhood was jumping my neighborhood was definitely jumping but i definitely needed to get the uh the hurricane take on halloween so that was that was your first year with Halloween in that new house, correct? Technically, technically second. We actually moved in last year, like on the 28th of October. So like very like didn't have anything set up in our house when we were uh, for our first Halloween there. It was very basic. We had minimal whatever. We were just like Head literally up, just yeah. had like, yeah, n- boxes you all around real quick. <laughs> you learned yeah. real quick. We better buy multiple bags of candy because it's uh it's heavy traffic on your block yeah and that's a good like segue into the official sponsor of the composite there you, Star Wars Roots there you picked Meredith. up on it yeah yeah i got you i got you i knew what was happening yeah, yeah. i got i got you and you know where you love her meredith schlosser i would not be able to hand out candy to trick-or-treaters which is something i really enjoy to do without being in a house this year and how did i get that house oh obviously i went with one of the best real estate agents in Los Angeles with Meredith Schlosser with over $600 million in sales and more than 200 five-star Zillow reviews. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. Check all the listings and postings that she has going on with her and her team. That's at Meredith Real Estate. Again, she's the best. Tell her 10K sent you. Gerard, cold open. We actually have a very big topic to talk about, a certain quote from Lincoln Rally, and that normally would be the cold open. We would get right into that sucker, let you go. I know you're you're itching to get in there, but as always, commitments take precedent. Commitments go to the top, and USC did get a pretty significant commitment. Five-star 2026 cornerback Brandon Lockhart committed to USC earlier this week. He is the number 16 overall prospect in our rankings. He's number 10 prospect in 24-7 sports composite, which makes him a five-star in the composite. Obviously, he is in five-star range within our rankings. He is the consensus number one cornerback in the composite and our rankings and the consensus number one prospect in California. Chose USC over a bunch of offers from Arizona, Auburn, Miami, Oregon, Penn State, Tennessee, Utah, Washington had a quite an offer list so early. Six foot two, 165 pounds out of Loyola in right here in Los Angeles, California gives USC another five star recruit in that 2026 class, which already has obviously the consensus number one quarterback in Julian Lewis. So two five stars in 2026. USC is the number one class in 2026. They were the number one class before Brandon Lockhart committed, but just gives them a little bit of extra juice for 2026. They also He also joins Tron Baker, 
the Los Alamitos wide receiver, who is unranked, but three commitments strong right now for USC in that 2026 class. I can't say we're surprised by this one, Gerard, because Brandon Larkhart has literally been to every USC home game this season. He's one of those core guys who's been to literally every game, home game this year. His mom was a U, uh, USC alum, and we knew the USC offer was pretty big for him. We knew USC was going to be a big player for him, but he goes ahead and decides to make the commitment so early to Dante Williams and Lincoln Riley going into a really big week. And I'm sure he's going to be in attendance in the Coliseum, which we'll get into visitors, but Brandon Lockhart, he is committed to be a Trojan right now. Gerard, big deal, not a big deal. Uh, not a huge deal, kind of a moderately big deal in that the 2026 class looks great. I mean, you love that they're number one two years from now, and they're building that class around Julian Lewis. Uh, that's, I think, a big deal uh, when you've got Tron Baker there, you go to the defensive side of the ball, you get one of the best defensive backs in the country, another cornerback from an evaluation standpoint. That is big. He's, you know, six, one and a half, six, two, 170 pounds could end up growing into being a safety. Uh, but right now, when you watch him on film, even as a freshman, you know, he contributed a lot of good minutes and a lot of good plays for Loyola. So this is a kid that is going to develop over the years. We're going to have to see again, in terms of body type, if he's putting on weight, if he looks like he's going to be a guy that you want to move back as more of a safety but as we've talked about on this podcast plenty of times before, cornerbacks are becoming bigger. They're becoming more lengthy. And it's not just because you're seeing big receivers on the other side of the football. It's also because football now on the defensive side, you are with the RPO having to contain the run or even screen passes with your cornerbacks. And so those guys are run support a lot more than they've ever been. They've had to take on blocks on the outside more than they ever have. And so those players are getting bigger. They're having to be more physical. They're having to make more tackles uh, in space. And so a guy like Brandon Lockhart is a great example of that trend and a player that is showing he has the athleticism uh, at a young age. He has the composure and the ability to go head to head against some of the best players in CIF. Uh, you look on that film and you're seeing guys like Chase Farrell, uh, he's going head to head with, and he has some great pass breakups. So another player, sort of a, a bit of a tweener when you're looking at uh, his projection kind of long-term. Again, we've got you know two plus years basically uh, before he's going to be signing a letter of intent. So from the standpoint of the impact of recruiting right here, right now, it's out in the near future. It's not necessarily something that is going to you know shift the momentum of the 2024 or the 2025 classes. Yet it is significant enough that when you look at where USC is trying to get to in terms of recruiting the high school ranks, that's where you want to be. You want to build a core early on that you can sort of build on top of once you get to that summer and you're able to finish the class off. One of the interesting things with the 2024 class is that it was built mostly around Dante Williams' interim head coaching uh, stint at USC. It was not necessarily built on a bunch of guys that were committing to Lincoln Riley and their staff. And we saw 
how that class in 2024 sort of disintegrated before they were building it back up when they got into the summer. I think they had three commitments going into the summer. You want to have more commitments to that. I think going into the summer these days, you probably want six, seven, maybe eight verbal commitments. And then in the summer, you're, you're getting to that point where you know where the majority of your class is. And during the season, maybe you have two or three more high school players that you're bringing into the class that haven't made their decisions over the summer. You don't want to be at a point where you've only got eight or nine or even just 10 commits during the summer. I, I think USC got to 14 at one point before they had a couple of decommitments. And that's even a little bit like, okay, a little low these days. These days, most of these classes are being built uh, towards the end of August into September, and you're usually in that 20 range. So it's good that you know we're already sort of building at that point, and we kind of know with the 2026 class, it is a very, very good class, and it is a stronger class than the 2025 class, and I dare say it's a stronger class than the 2024 class. There's better high-end talent. There are more game changers in that class. As we're projecting, obviously, these players have to get better. They have to develop. You don't want to necessarily have a player which is showing right now as a sophomore his peak ability. You want these guys physically and just in terms of their football IQ, all of that to continue to progress. But early on, looking at that class, it's definitely a class that has more high-end type players that are game changers. And I think it's a bit more deep. And, and I also think that there are more positions where there is good talent, especially locally. And we'll get into talking about local recruiting versus national recruiting once again on this podcast, uh, not because you know we're broaching the subject, but the, the subject has been broached. Uh, and so I think you know from that standpoint, it's a good class and USC's already kind of got their foot in the door. And, and certainly... And I, this is a, another reason why you kind of take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. It's two years away, and we know a lot can happen between now and then. We know a lot can happen just in a month or two when it comes to the recruiting process. Uh, certainly, you know, the earlier, uh, the more can happen, it seems. You know, once you get out of the summer, then there's a little less wiggle room. Uh, we're seeing less decommitments during decommitment season than we have in the past. Uh, yet there are still things that can happen during the season. So we are a ways away. And so that's why you don't put too much stock in these verbal commitments, very non-binding commitments. Uh, there will be various different hurdles and obstacles that USC has to overcome to make sure that they maintain commitments from Julian Lewis, especially, uh, but Brandon Lockett as well, Tron Baker. But it's a good start to the class, certainly. And it is something that again, maybe it 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 uh, cultivates some confidence that Lincoln Riley is in it for the long haul at USC. You know, looking forward and building classes that are uh, two, three years down the line. Um, I think the one interesting aspect of this that you have to also consider, however, is that these commitments don't mean a whole lot from the standpoint that they're not binding and that so much can happen in two years. And, and we've seen, as I said, during whether the interim head coaching uh, stint that Dante Williams had or, or just this past summer 
where you have guys like Manasseh Etete and Dakota Fields commit and literally like a month and a half later decommit during a dead period, by the way, <laughs> during a period where there's not a whole lot going on uh, between coaching staffs and the actual recruits, you still can have things and maneuver with the recruiting process. So I think from that standpoint, you do have to look at the bigger picture and understand that there is some leverage with commitments. And I think looking at the defensive staff and knowing that there are going to be potential changes here, it's it's hard to imagine there's not going to be any changes on the defensive side of the ball from a coaching staff standpoint. And clearly you could go all the way to the top and say, okay, Alex Grinch, there's going to be questions whether he's going to be brought back or not. I think a lot of Trojan fans do want to see a change at the defensive coordinator position. That in and itself could change your whole defensive staff. There's not been enough, in my opinion, in any of these games to say, well, this position or that position is safe and you should bring that coach back for sure. I think that the defense has struggled enough that if you are going to replace Alex Grinch, that you have to give a new defensive coordinator, Car Blanche, to come in and change the whole staff if he needs to. Okay, you bring in your guys that understand your scheme, that coach practice the way you want it coached. You want a specific way of breaking down team meetings, watching film. I mean, it's a whole thing. So you want to give them that freedom to be able to do that. At the same time, maybe you decide, you know what, I'm giving Alex Grinch another season. And I know Trojan fans, the majority of them, they just turn they just turn the podcast up. They just turn the <laughs> you last thirty percent of our audience just turned it off. Expect the worst, tonight. hope for the best is what I would say in that regard. But nevertheless, you have to look at that option, and then there's still going to be potential moves that will be made. And so, you know, when you have that on the horizon, you know that the recruiting and what your value is to a program as a recruiter is something that kind of can go with you. So if you have five stars and and recruits attached to your name, then you become a little bit more of a commodity, whether a commodity to be brought back on the staff or a commodity to another school that is looking for a coach and a coach that is also a good recruiter. So we have to keep that in mind also when we look at these commitments that are down the line. You know, 2024 commitments right now are a bigger deal for USC. They move the needle more for what this team is going to look like in the near future. 2026, not so much, as we already explained. And and everybody that follows recruiting understands this. A lot can happen. But it is a sort of nice thing to say, well, you know, I have this relationship with this recruit and wherever I go in the next coming years, we're going to have a shot at that player because of this relationship. So I think a little bit of that dynamic is also at play here. Yeah, it's a very interesting dynamics considering, you know, a lot of people really excited about Brandon Lockhart. But again, you have no idea what the staff is going to look like two years down the road. You know, two years of recruiting, that's like 15 years. That means 15 years in normal time. It's it's such a long time. You have no idea who's going to be here, who's 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 not going to be here, who is going to be here. You don't know what it looks like. 
Obviously, Brandon Lockhart has a lot of love for USC. His uh, his mom went there, but he also has a lot of love for for Dante Williams. You could say, uh, Gerard, he has. I got love for Coach. You know, I know that's a Miami meme for us, but it also applies here. He's got a lot of love for Dante Williams. Will Dante Williams be here? He's on the last year of his contract. He's obviously the only holdover from Clay Helton's staff that Lincoln Riley kept. So, again, a lot of questions. A lot of questions that will be answered in the offseason. We don't know, but it is a big one for Dante Williams. You know, another five-star cornerback that he has on his resume of getting a commitment from. So, again, you talk about this leverage. It's very interesting. But for the time being, it is a nice pickup for USC in the, uh, I guess, in the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just interim. The, uh, the interim, if you will. And, yeah, it does, you know. Kind of something you can point to, you know, in the press conferences like, hey, we got a big commitment from a local kid. Obviously, you can't say the name, but, you know, kind of that that when Lincoln Riley is asked about local recruiting, it's like, hey, this is one of our wins. These are one of our wins. Again, it's 2026. More people will want to talk about 2024 wins. And again, we're going to get into that big quote from earlier uh, from I don't know if he said it last week or this week, but we're going to get into that big quote. So. Gerard, is there anything else you want to talk about with Brandon Lockhart? Are you ready to move on to this weekend in terms of visitors? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the Washington game and a very interesting week for USC recruiting, uh, hosting one of the best teams in the nation and then simultaneously hosting a few official visitors. Gerard, we did this last year where we put them into categories. Right now, there's only two that we know of that are going to be taking official visits this weekend for the Washington game. We've reported on them previously in previous episodes, both defensive linemen. You have Fairfield, California defensive tackle, Jericho Johnson, a favorite on the P and then Shreveport, Louisiana, three-star defensive end, Gabe Relaford, who is a Texas A&M commit. Gerard, are we going to put these guys into categories? Because just first glance looking at it, I feel like Jericho Johnson may be closer territory closer range and then Relaford maybe in our kind of wild card range I don't know what what are you feeling on that or do you agree do you disagree what's going on I would agree with that I think that okay. Jericho Johnson at this point it's three-team race it's Washington it's Oregon and it's USC now he hasn't been to USC for a while and so this is a little bit of more of that kickstart his recruitment again, but USC's never completely fallen out of favor. I think they've always been within striking range. So this is a visit that not only are you playing a team that is among his favorite schools, but the opportunity to beat that team at home during his official visit, where you are again, sort of rekindling that interest, bringing the family down you can create a ton of momentum. I mean, this is a game-changing sort of visit for Jericho Johnson and USC. Now, you can kill your chances as well by going out there and laying an egg versus Washington. Uh, So it's very high-risk, high-reward. You got to play the game, Gerard. You got to play the game. You miss every shot you don't take. There you go. So this is one of those where USC is definitely – put up or shut up, and deciding, hey, you know what, we 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 have some confidence that we are going to play well against Washington, 
let's try to emphasize and try to get the most out of the recruiting process with it as well. So bringing him down uh, is big. You know, Oregon is still a big factor in his recruitment. Um, but I think that if USC was able to win this game and defense plays well, that I feel like they would take a lead for Jericho Johnson. I think there's enough away from football, having spoken to him, that USC is a great fit for him. They check a lot of boxes for a kid like this. It's really just the football angle and the development angle. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be some NIL there with Oregon. There always is. Uh, they're at a point now where you know that's that's become a major factor for them. It was facilities, facilities, facilities. Now it's sort of NIL with Nike. What about uniforms? Um, yeah, uniforms, <laughs> but everybody has uniforms now. You know, every school has uniforms. So that's not a unique thing to Oregon. And a lot of schools have great facilities. And I've always said facilities are a bit overrated. They're nice to have. You don't want to have bad facilities. But I saw USC get become a recruiting juggernaut with facilities that, that look like they were from the Soviet Union. I mean, they were absolutely dilapidated, a joke. They didn't care. Kids didn't care. They This is Pete Carroll. This is go, you know, an NFL uh, head coach, guy that had Super Bowl rings, and he was fun to be around, and they were winning football games, and they were kicking people's butts, and it was like, yeah, I want to be a part of that. That was the most important thing. So this is a different era, but I still think from that standpoint, facilities are a bit down uh, the rung when it comes to, you know, the, the, the tier list of factors and things that really sway recruitments. Uh, I think relationships and um, NFL development, uh, certainly NIL with some kids more so than others. We're still trying to get that sort of median, you know, what is the, 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 uh, I don't know how to even put this, like what, how many of these kids out of a group that you're going to bring in on official visits, are you looking at NIL being like the main factor? You know, it's still trying to kind of figure out like how many of these guys can you basically write off after they official visit because USC is not going to make some kind of deal or some type of promise or whatever for these kids out of high school. It's just not been their philosophy. That's not been their strategy. Uh, so, you know, we'll see how that whole sort of intangible kind of variable plays out for Jericho Johnson. But Having spoken to him on a couple of occasions and just kind of been around him, I think, you know, USC, again, is, is a really good fit on a lot of different levels for him. And not to say that Washington isn't or, or, or Oregon isn't, but I think USC, the academics and, and some of the things that they sell post-graduation really impact him. And he was very impressed and he regurgitated a lot of that information word to word, which always tells me he was listening because mm -hmm. there's a lot of kids that sort of talk it, but they're not very detailed about the presentations and they don't get into things to the point where you go, okay, you are very much uh, sold on these selling points and these things that are being presented to you and how they will impact your life big picture. And I feel like Jericho Johnson definitely is a more of a big picture recruit when it comes to that. But it, again, it's not something that you can just say, well, okay, that's going to be the main factor and everything else is not going 
to sway things. I think that you have to also have the football aspect in your corner, and that's why you got to go beat Washington flat out. So I think, yeah, he's definitely a closer. I think we're at that point in time with this visit. It's going to be a big visit for him. With Shreveport, three-star defensive end, Gabe Rutherford, I do think he's a bit of a wild card, mainly because he's still committed to Texas A&M. He has yet to decommit, and there was some talk like maybe he was going to decommit, but he has stayed committed to Texas A&M. So that in itself is it makes it a harder read. He could decide, you know, I like everything that's being offered here, but Texas A&M is going to offer more. Texas A&M, one of those five families. So, and he's a guy that we I haven't talked to, I haven't spoken to. He's been kind of hard to to get a hold of. I have spoken to a couple of different reporters and people that talk to him, and their read on the situation is, you know, USC could get traction with this. This this is more of a traction visit. He's never visited USC. I don't know that he has much background with Los Angeles or any family out here. So there is sort of that we're kind of breaking the ice and developing and furthering the relationship. Uh, this is not one of those recruitments where you would expect him to visit, be blown away, and commit. Now, again, USC goes out there in front of a sellout crowd, and they go beat one of the best teams in the nation, particularly when they have struggled so much You know, coming into this month. I mean, every game has been a struggle, whether it's a team that's ranked or a team that's unranked. It hasn't USC hasn't really played a complete game for a very long time. So I could imagine if you were to turn around and you were to beat Washington, just the sort of unexpectedness of that. I mean, I'm not guaranteeing this or predicting this, but if they beat Washington, you might even see maybe the crowd rushes the field. I don't, I don't know. It would be the biggest win in Lincoln Riley's coaching career at USC for sure. Oh, absolutely. so that that type of environment would there's, there's, there's a little bit of a wild card in in that in and of itself, right? So yeah, it, it it could it could go you know very positive for USC, or it could just be one of those things where it's like, okay, yeah, USC is a school that I'm looking at, and it was interesting, and they offer things away from football that maybe Texas A&M doesn't, but is that going to be enough? to be able to pull him away from Texas A&M or even Tennessee, because Tennessee is another school that has been working on him. And I think he's taken an unofficial visit already to Tennessee. So there's some competition there beyond just whether he's going to stay committed to Texas A&M or not. So those are the two primary, you know, 2024 official visitors, the VIPs, if you will. But there are some other high quality younger prospects that will be on campus for this game for one 2026 five-star quarterback julian lewis tweeted out that he's going to be in attendance for this game his first usc game day experience he was obviously at usc multiple times over the spring and summer but this will be his first chance with people in the coliseum as i mentioned a sold out crowd top five team coming to town this is a big atmosphere electric all those things and there's also some other top 2025 guys on their way. Uh, Steve uh, Wilfong posted about 2025 defensive lineman, edge rusher, Landon London Merritt out of Atlanta, Georgia, the Woodyard Academy. He's a top consensus, top 50 prospect, excuse me, top 100 prospects, six foot three, 235. He will be making the trip out 
to Los Angeles for this game. And I reported on the board as well, got a tip out of a Texas source that 2025 four-star offensive lineman Lamont Rogers will be in attendance. Six foot six, 305 pounds. I know USC fans love hearing those measurables out of Mesquite, Texas. Uh, number 83 overall in the number six offensive tackle in the nation per our 24-7 sports rankings. He is expected to be in town as well. And look, these are just a handful of the top guys that are expected to be there. But we expect a ton of local guys, you know, guys that have been made uh, treks out to the Coliseum multiple times. Uh, you know, you can expect Brandon Lockhart to be there. We would expect Dijon Lee to be there. We would expect Trinidad Wilson to be there. All these guys, Philip Bell. Lots and lots of guys. And hey, Sejab Bosco and Modern Day are on bye weeks. Maybe we get some uh, some of the Trinity League boys out there for this one. So this is going to be the hot ticket in town with an, undefe- an undefeated team coming to the Coliseum and USC trying to pull off that upset. They're going to market this and get uh, anyone they can to come to this game in terms of a prospect. Yeah, 100%. So you, you will see... A big unofficial visitor list. Washington is going to be calling kids and saying, hey, come down to the Coliseum. They probably feel very confident about how they're going to play against USC, and they want to make the most of that trip for sure. So I would expect there to be quite a few big unofficial visitors there locally and a few guys, as you said, coming in uh, unofficially from out of state. I also anticipate there's going to be maybe – a couple more official visitors. We have yet mm-hmm. to pin down some confirmation, but I've heard rumblings that there might be another official visitor or two for this game. And I also think you're going to get some commitments from this game, whether USC wins or not. I would not be surprised if you had a couple commitments actually come from this game, not you know necessarily from the official visitors, uh, not necessarily, um, you know, all from uh, one particular class, but I think that there's definitely potential. Uh, one name, you know, we can kind of talk about and throw out there is Justin Tuanau, who we thought might already have flipped from Stanford already and committed to USC. He is still committed to Stanford, but this is sort of the type of uh, situation where, you know, win or lose, you could see USC kind of pushing for that commitment, you know, on the backside of a loss, you get a commitment, you know, maybe that uh, sort of, um, you know, douses the flames a little bit, depending on how you play. I think this is the type of game where if USC just plays competitively and they play well, and, and I know there's some Trojan fans out there going moral victories are not victories for USC, but you want them to come out and, and play a good game and play a complete a complete game. And if you lose against a really good team, hey, it is what it is. You're in year two of this rebuild, and it is a rebuild. That 11-win season, as we've talked already, a bit of a detriment to perhaps the expectations and the pressure put on the program to be in the college football playoff this season. I think that you certainly still feel good if USC is playing a good game against a good team. We have not seen USC play a good game against a good team in, well, this season, quite frankly, because we haven't seen them play and beat 
a lot of good teams. And then on the flip side, uh, the good team that they did play, which is basically uh, Notre Dame, uh, they did not play well against. And they played okay against Utah, but Utah down to their third string quarterback, I don't know if you would really say Utah was a good team when they played USC and USC probably should have won that game. So we're at that point where, you know, want to see USC play a complete game. Um, you know, certain things you, you want to see from the defense, certain things you want to see from the offense. And we'll get into that when we talk about three things that you and I both want to see from USC playing against Washington. But I, in terms of the fan reaction and, and because the past two weeks, uh, really the past three weeks, we've been dealing with message board meltdowns and it's just become, you know, this whole thing that is, is the least favorite part of my job is being on the message boards during the game and having don't say, lock, don't say. delete and merge and then get complaints because the trolls are taking over. And it's like, you have no idea how many people we've banned. You have no idea how many threads we've locked. You you're only seeing the things that you don't like and you don't agree with. And, uh, certainly when the team is not playing well, you're going to see much more of that. And it's going to come not just from people that are trying to entice uh, negative comments and reactions, but also from the fan base. It's just not happy with the way things are going. And again, that is connected with those expectations that came after an 11-win season. But if USC comes out and they, they play well against Washington and they lose a close game, you know, there's still something there. I feel like you're still showing progression. You're still moving the program in the right direction. And that in the rebuild is very, very important. I don't think the fan base felt the way that USC played against Notre Dame. They were heading in the right direction there. Losing to Utah uh, for a third time in two years with a third-string quarterback, as the peristyle likes to call him, the pig farmer. <laughs> That's not – it's not instilling a lot of confidence in the fan base that the trajectory of the program is going the right way, barely beating Cal, et cetera. So you do want to see – some and even if it is i know sorry a moral victory in a way in year two of a rebuild you do want to see some things done where it looks like okay usc is moving in that direction they are getting to that point where there are actually a better team and they are playing better week to week uh, because then you got to go up to eugene and then you've got ucla and ucla is a pretty decent team you know you want to see where USC is improving. And of course, off the heels of Lincoln Riley talking about the longer it goes, the better we get. I mean, it's one of those things that I tell you, man, coaching mantras. Win like forever. That, win forever, yeah, Drew. Win forever. They they just fall in your lap like hot coffee. They always end up backfiring on you. And the team is clearly, in so many different ways, not gotten better the longer it's gone on. So, you know, there's a lot of different things here, a lot of different nuances and uh, the scrutiny that, you know, the hardcore fans are looking at this under. Uh, you want to see a great game here for USC, and I'm sure there's going to be complaints if they lose, you know, and it's a close game. Oh, if we wouldn't have done, if we would have done this, we should have done this, and Lincoln Riley should do this, and Alex, you know, there will be plenty of that. But nevertheless, there will still be – I think, hey, this was actually a good football team that came down and we gave them a run for their money. Um, at the same time, you beat Washington 
you know, that's definitely a notch in the belt. You know, that's it's not exactly Texas A&M going and beating uh, Alabama and, and building a recruiting class off of that or Texas doing basically the same thing. It's not quite that level because Washington hasn't been at that level that Alabama has been. Nevertheless, locally, it, you know, Washington's, like you said, top five football team and you able to beat them. That's going to give you a lot of buzz and maybe some traction here. And you're able to get a guy like Jericho Johnson, which would be a huge need for USC, you know, getting uh, one of the top interior defensive linemen in the nation and perhaps being able to grab a couple other commitments that come with it, whether it be from 2025 or the 2026 class, there would be a feeling of momentum getting closer to signing day, getting closer to the end of the season and a bowl game. And that's where USC sort of fell off last year. You know, they were kind of at this spot where people are talking, you know, college football playoff at the end of the year. And I remember it was funny because shotgun got a lot of flack for saying this team isn't ready for the college football playoff. And there was some semantics there debated between whether they deserve or they're ready for it. And obviously if you win certain games and you're in a position rank wise, you do deserve to go, but whether you're ready or not is a different discussion. And I agreed wholeheartedly with shotgun. That team was not ready. That team was ready to go to the college football playoff and get handed themselves probably an embarrassing loss. They just weren't a good enough team all around to be able to go there and be, I think, competitive with those other programs. And that's not something that's good for your brand. It's not good for recruiting. You take a big step back when you get beat like TCU did in the championship game. And you say, well, we got to the championship game. But yeah, man, you got 65 points plastered on your forehead. And you you look like you should be playing in you know, the sub bowl division, not the big boy division. So uh, it's one of those things there, you know, again, looking at the bigger picture and where USC is in a rebuild, um, you do, I think, get some brownie points, if you will, for coming out here, being competitive and showing life and showing that you are getting better as a football team and that you are ready to compete at the highest levels. So you hope for a win, but you also want to see certain things competitively that maybe we have not seen in some of these games just recently. We've talked a lot about Washington early in the show, and I think it actually helps and it plays into our next topic, which is a new 2024 offer, Gerard, on the defensive line to a Washington commit. I'm referring to Dominic Kirks, or as he goes by Dom Kirks, which sounds like a hip-hop artist name, which um, I, I vibe with. He is a three-star prospect in the 24-7 Sports Composite, or excuse me, the 24-7 Sports Rankings, number 50, number 49, excuse me, defensive lineman, six foot five, 250 pounds out of Riverside, Ohio. He is the number 368 overall prospect and number 41 defensive lineman and a four-star prospect in the 24-7 Sports Composite, committed to Washington back in late June. He has been looking around, though. He has been upfront about, you know, wanting to take more visits, specifically among Big Ten schools. Maryland just offered. I believe he's on record of wanting to visit Ohio State and Michigan State at some point this uh, season. So he is definitely looking around. Uh, 24-7 Sports, Alan True caught up with him, and, you know, he did talk about maybe taking a visit out to uh, US or USC in Los Angeles. You know, there would be a, a thing he would want to do. 
But again, this is something we're going to have to wait and see on Dominic Kirks. But USC, another 2024 offer they've made. Gerard, when I watched his tape, he doesn't have a lot of senior tape out. He doesn't have a uh, highlight tape out, but watched a little bit of his junior, watched some of his uh, individual games from his senior year. He looks heavier than he did as a junior. He's a former basketball player. I think some of that athleticism shows up. But I don't know about you, but when I watch him, he's a, he's obviously a, bigger than uh, this guy was out of high school because he was under-recruited out of high school. He had to develop. But I get Solomon Bird vibes when I watch uh, Dom Kirk's this season or in his huddle tape. I don't know about you or what your thoughts are on this offer. My thoughts on this offer are more along the lines that it's another sign USC feels like they're going to be able to beat Washington. I mean, you're offering kids that are committed to a school which you're going to play, and if you weren't confident that you are going to be able to get that W, then you wouldn't go after guys from a school that they're already committed to. You know, they already have a good relationship built up. And though that's not go- that's not going to change if you lose to that school. So to me, it's just another, you know, sort of indication that the coaching staff, their read, you know, for better or for worse, is we're going to go beat Washington. And we're going to have a chance to pluck away, cherry pick maybe some guys that we like that are committed in their class. You usually see this after a win. You know, where USC would win and then maybe the next week they start offering a a couple players uh, from that program. But they're calling their shot here a little bit uh, with uh, some of the official visits and offering uh, a couple of players here uh, over the past month that were committed to Washington. So that's the thing that really reads to me more than anything else. Interesting. It's interesting that they would have such high confidence going to this game despite having pretty much struggled over the last, you know, several weeks, it, it just it just feels like a lot of pressure to put on themselves for this game. But, you know, maybe that pressure makes a diamond and the diamond is a big win over a number five ranked team. I don't know. It just we it just feels weird, at least for us as media and then for fans who have been watching this team to have that kind of confidence going into this game, even though I still think that they can win this game. But. There hasn't been much over the last several weeks that indicates that they will win this game. I don't disagree with you, but at the same time, I mean, you listen to Lincoln Riley talk and you get the vibe that they're not seeing things obviously the same way that the fan base or the media are seeing things. And so, you know, they're pre-scouting and evaluation of Washington I'm not saying anybody's guaranteeing any wins, but there has to be some confidence there. I've seen it time and time before. Like This is not the first uh, time you see something like this sort of align, and it doesn't always work out. (laughs) It does not always work out for the team that's uh, recruiting off of this big game. You know, there have been instances where Notre Dame had a huge recruiting weekend and USC went out there and beat them. Uh, Oregon had a huge recruiting weekend uh, a few years ago, and it was it was more than a few years ago, but it was one of those games where they had LeBron James at the game. They actually built auxiliary stands to be able to host even more uh, of the crowd, 
And it was a huge game where they had every recruit they could possibly have visit that weekend. USC went up there and beat them, beat them on a blocked field goal. And so, you know, it, it can backfire on you, certainly. But usually there's some confidence there. And, um, you know, when it, and this is this is not necessarily a big recruiting weekend for USC. I mean, it's not one of those recruiting weekends where we're expecting like eight official visitors or 10 official visitors. I mean, sometimes it's crazy. Like the Notre Dame game where I believe that was Lane Kiffin and they went in there with Mark Tyler and they beat you. Uh, they beat Notre Dame in South Bend. Notre Dame had like 30 something visitors and there was like, oh God, like 16 official visitors. So it was a mega weekend for them and they got beat and it was like, oh man. And USC took advantage. You know, they went in after, after some of those guys that were committed to Notre Dame and, and, but that was all sort of after the fact, you know, they went in and they, and they won that game. So it can definitely go against you. It's a gamble. Like we said before, high risk, High reward uh, when you have um, a bunch of recruits down for a game uh, against a really good team that, you know, could end up beating you by, you know, multiple scores uh, if you're not ready. But it just feels like USC seen something and they're excited uh, to, to host. Uh, certainly the environment will be guaranteed. It will be a great environment. Uh, you just want to make sure that it's a great environment for the home crowd <laughs> and not the visiting crowd. Gerard, as we mentioned, we expect a ton of unofficial visitors there, specifically a good amount of local prospects in attendance. You know, Brandon Lockhart, Dijon Lee, Philip Bell, you name it, a bunch of local guys, which springboards us into a very interesting quote that Lincoln Riley gave uh, last month recently that had a lot of people, you know, up in arms and reacting. And we got emailed about it, obviously, on this recruiting podcast. It was uh, from Chris from San Jose. He wrote, not going to mess around here. Can we get your take on these Lincoln Riley quotes in regards to recruiting and specifically local recruiting? Heck, your opinions might take the whole podcast. Thanks, Chris from San Jose. So, I thought this warranted its own topic and not, you know, to be down in the listener questions because he's right. I feel like, Gerard, this is a moment where you're going to go for an hour on this. So I needed to give it time to breathe. So it might be nighttime by the time you're done talking about this. But this is what this recruiting podcast is built for, for you to cook. So now I'm going to take a quick drink of water before I read this hefty quote out loud. You can prime whatever you need to prime before you know you, re, you start reacting. Well, all that pressure now. Now I, I have to basically look at the clock because I've got an hour that I have to fill here. You don't need to do <laughs> opinion on uh, this quote, and there have been several quotes over the past month or so where Lincoln Riley has addressed. Recruiting, and of course, the peristyle has talked a lot about recruiting, what's not happening, what is happening, etc. So this is sort of an ongoing narrative that has really been sourced all the way back to, I say, July, because July is where things sort of went against USC. And June was good for USC. 
you got some commitments there that were unexpected. Then we get into July and we're expecting potentially more commitments. And then it kind of goes the other way. And USC ends up losing some commitments from some key players. So again, in terms of this narrative, it's been ongoing, but it is interesting to listen to Lincoln Riley address it. It's always going to be general and somewhat vague because coaches are not allowed to speak publicly about recruits and not speak detailed information on the recruiting process itself, which, you know, for various different reasons, that's an NCAA rule. But this quote is a long quote. So good luck, Chris. Um, And it touches on a few different things. Uh, It is interesting. I I just read it through here as uh, we were were speaking on the podcast. and, And I actually did not read this. And I don't know you know, in terms of the question and the back and forth, I'm going to be accused of, you know, reading this and having a take on it when it's taken on of context, etc. But I only know it from what Antonio Morales actually tweeted. So go ahead and read this tweet. So, you know, we can sort of discuss what's there, what Antonio had actually published. Shout out to Antonio of The Athletic, fellow cilantro boy and the one who asked Lincoln Riley about recruiting and specifically local recruiting. This isn't the full quote, but this is the part of it that talks specifically about local recruiting. So I'm going to do my best to not stumble or, or mess up as I do sometimes on this show when it comes to name pronunciation or reading quotes. But here we go, Gerard. Quote. As far as recruiting, whether it be national or local, to me, it's kind of all the same. How do you build the best roster you can of the guys that are available to go recruit? Because at the end of the day, if you go win a national championship and you have a roster mixed from all over the country, nobody's going to say, ah, well, that's great. You won a national championship, but you don't have 80% local guys. The flip side is if you don't have a good, good year, They're not going to say, well, at least he has a bunch of California kids on his team. You clearly have to do a great job locally. But like I told you guys when I got here, it's about getting the right guys. I think in my evaluation of the program, when we got here and started and started looking at the roster, I think there are a lot of players from the state of California that, in my opinion, should not have been on the USC roster for one reason or another. Hiding behind the curtain of, well, at least they're recruiting California kids doesn't do the program any good yeah we want to get california kids we want to get local kids we want them to be the right kids the right kind of kids right kind of students right kind of players that fit what we're building not ones that go against the grain of what we're building end quote now obviously there's a lot going on there i saw this quote pop up in a pretty popular facebook High school football, local high school parents, players, coaches thread. And boy, did they have some comments on it about, is he dissing California kids? Is he right? You know, got got the people talking, Gerard, on social media, on the message boards, on Facebook, all those places. So now, but the only voice that matters is Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Gerard Hurricane Martinez, what are you taking away from this quote Is he right? Is he wrong? Should he have said it? Should he not have said it? Is his message being, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? 
taken out of context, altered. What what are you what are you thinking, Gerard? Again, I can't speak to context because I don't know what the whole conversation was. I can only speak to this particular part of the quote that he gave and also some of the other things that he has said in full uh, because there was recently another Q&A, if you will, with the scrum about recruiting and where recruiting is right now. And, you know, there was some quotes taken from that conversation. And then there was the greater conversation that I listened to. And I think there's definitely a theme that is coming from all of this as a whole. But but specifically, I do have to know, I didn't go back and listen to the entire scrum or if this was a specific question that was done via teleconference, what have you. I only have this to analyze and to talk about. I think first and foremost, there's some local recruiting copium here because Lincoln says flat out in this, you clearly have to do a great job recruiting locally. You have to do a great job. They're not doing a great job. We we know that. And I, I think if he was pressed on, do you think you're doing a great job locally? Uh, there would have to be some uh, attribution to that. There would have to be some, well, considering this is year two, that's where you start to gain context. Because just in terms of rankings, ratings, numbers, they're not doing a great job. The other thing is there's a bit of a truism here. We have to get the right guys. No matter where they're from, we want the right guys. Well, of course. Of course you do. That goes without saying. You don't want the wrong guys. We're going to go recruit the highest rated players, but they're all going to be the wrong guys for us. You, you want to get the right guys. But that's a little bit, again, of sort of you, you can move that goalpost a little bit and say, well, this guy, yeah, you know, we missed out on three other guys, and he's a three-star and not necessarily somebody that you want to build your program around, but he's the right guy for us. And so that is sort of, and I hate to say it, something that you would hear from Clay Hilton because USC often went into Texas trying to reinvent themselves under Clay Hilton. They had not had recent success. Kids out of state, particularly out of region, and we've talked a little bit about the cultural differences when you kind of go beyond Arizona and Nevada and you're off the West Coast completely, you start to deal with kids that just have different backgrounds and what, how they've been raised and, and you know, whether it's small towns or big towns, it's just a little bit different. And so when you go out of the region, you know, those kids don't pay attention to the program and its trajectory as much as the local players. And it's not even them individually paying attention. It's the circles that they run in. It's their uncles. It's their coaches. It's their trainers. These are the people that tend to influence how they think about a particular football program. And when these guys are not talking about this football program because it's a football program from outside the region, then the kids are really just listening to the coaches that are recruiting them and what they have to say about the program. Because there's not a lot of familiarity with the program 
in that circle that they are in. Whereas locally, you're going to have a lot of opinions. You just talked about Facebook page and parents and coaches talking about this quote. And there's a lot of that. And that reverberates to the local recruits. So locally, kids know Clay Elton not getting the job done. That staff not getting the job done. And the culture within the program not meeting expectations. A lot more detail about what's going on right here, right now. You can't go out of the, the like you can another region and start talking about Reggie Bush and Matt Liner, which is the other part of this, which I find interesting because if you're Lincoln Riley, who are you recruiting off of? Meaning, who are the players that come to mind with these recruits in Texas, in Florida, in Georgia, in the DMV? Are you mentioning a bunch of guys from Texas that were at USC? I mean, is Mike Morgan's name being dropped? Or are you recruiting off of Reggie Bush from San Diego, Matt Liner, Santa Ana Mater Day, Robert Woods, Gardena Serra, Marquise Lee, Gardena Serra? Like, how many of these guys? do you recruit off of that are names that are guys that didn't play locally in California? So there is the argument that the players that are really the ones that you build the program off of that you're recruiting off the backs of Drake London, those are local guys. So the idea again, that you can sort of reinvent yourself in Texas and say, yeah, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're we're rebuilding. But you remember the Pete Carroll era. You remember what this program is capable of, right? John McKay, the national championships. How many of those guys on those teams were from out of state? There's a few. I mean, Brian Cushing's name comes up a lot. He was from New Jersey. You could say, you know, Dwayne Jarrett. But are you really talking about Dwayne Jarrett over Robert Woods or or Drake London? No, you're not. So again, I think that there's a little bit of copium here because A, he, he agrees you have to do a great job recruiting locally and USC isn't. And when we did this on the peristyle, and I think it's pertinent to bring up here, a hypothetical 2024 class made up of just some of the top players in California, the top 25 players, let's say, right? In the ratings, who USC actually recruited and wanted. So we're not talking about guys like Julian Sand, who USC never recruited. They just never were interested, never recruited him. And certainly when he says there's players that were in California on this roster that we feel shouldn't have been at USC, I agree with that wholeheartedly. But again, you're talking <laughs> yeah. about the Clay Helton era and they missed on a lot of guys in California. They're going over to East Texas and Texas and plucking away guys, pretending that, oh, this three-star guy in Texas is just as good as this four-star guy in California. Well, how many of those guys did you think should have been on the roster? Probably not a lot of those guys either. So I think the roster in itself didn't have the level of talent and it had players in it from a cultural standpoint or just from a talent standpoint that weren't at a level that you would expect from USC. Clay Helton was extremely detrimental to the brand. And most Trojan fans knew that from Jump Street, that 2016 class, that 2016 year, it was like, oh, what? I mean, it really kind of, it was a, it, it was hard for people to figure out. I mean, they started out like people thought they would. <laughs> they got blown out by Alabama, which by the way, 
a brand affecting loss on national television. Can I actually jump in right quick? Because I just want to add more context to the question because the question initially from Antonio was about USC's brand. It was specifically about USC's brand had taken a big hit, you know, under the previous staff and over the last several years when he got here, you know, you obviously had to do some repairing of that brand. How does he feel it's been going and has it been harder than he thought in terms of reestablishing that brand, especially with local recruits. That was the that was the basis of the question about USC's brand being tarnished and having to rebuild that specifically with local recruits. So you had mentioned the brand. So I just wanted to add the further context to the actual question being asked. Absolutely. And so the brand definitely took a hit with Clay Helton. And that was what frustrated so many people, I think, with the hire. But then Subsequently, as it was proven over consecutive seasons, and it's like, listen, we're just digging ourselves a bigger and bigger hole. And, you know, even that staff was like, okay, locally, we're sort of not not necessarily burning bridges, but we've gotten to the point where the program is not developing enough. And this is really before the NIL era. So it was really about development, winning championships, and that's why you go – and you have a really a staff full of Texans, because I think there was at one point nine different staff members on the full time staff, which all had their connections to Texas. So it stands to reason, OK, we're going to go to Texas to recruit a bunch of players because that's where our high school connections are. And we can go there. And those kids haven't really paid attention as much as the local kids. And again, I have to say, it's not really the, the recruits themselves. It's their circles. It's their parents. It's their coaches. Those are the adults that actually go past just the box scores. And if it's school like USC, they're just not as much attention paid as Oklahoma, as Texas, as LSU, as Texas A&M, et cetera. So the brand definitely, it took a hit and it took a hit locally, probably more so than it did nationally just because of that particular reason. But we talked about this on the Peristyle, and we sort of put together a bit of a hypothetical class, a class which is built on the players that USC actually wanted and recruited locally. So not guys that they maybe didn't. And again, you know, you talk about the right players, and I I totally understand that, and I agree with that, but you can kind of use that as we kind of anybody we get is the right player when you know you've lost out and you've missed on some players. So, you know, you look at the offensive line and that kind of where it begins and stands out the most because that is a position which had been under-recruited during the Clay Helton era. I mean, we talked about it during the Clay Helton era, how many cycles they missed not being able to land a highly ranked offensive tackle. It was really Austin Jackson, and then after that, they just could not they could not recruit themselves out of a paper bag to get <laughs> a, a highly uh, a real actual franchise left tackle on the roster. And so locally, Manasseh Etete, Adam Modesto, Brandon Baker, DeAndre Carter. In my opinion, if USC had their druthers, based on how they recruited over the spring, if they were getting the guys that they wanted, the right guys, 
locally, you get a Tete who you had committed at one point. He decommitted to go to Florida State, very NIL-driven recruitment. Brandon Baker, number one left tackle in the country. Now, I, I don't really agree with that. I don't feel like he is the number one offensive tackle in the country. I, I feel like there's potential he ends up playing right tackle. He plays right tackle at the high school level, but still a very talented player that you take. You know, they don't have like a bunch of guys that you're, you're going to take over Brandon Baker. And the same with DeAndre Carter. DeAndre Carter, we talked about a little bit. There was some press to get him committed. He wasn't ready to commit at that point. And for what we were told, USC moved on and they brought in uh, Makai Asina. And uh, maybe Sienna, they they liked and you could make that debate. Well, you know what? They would take him over DeAndre Carter. But from what I understand, it was more the Car- Carter deciding to make the move and then USC going, okay, well, we have someone else that we like as much. So you could switch those guys out. I mean, this is not a sort of like hard, you know, every one of these guys you have to take. And this is, you know, the point that I'm making it's, this is the general kind of hypothetical class that you could build. You'd still take Jason Zandamella, who's the number one ranked interior offensive lineman in the country. That's a great get for them. And there's, you know, nobody locally that you would take over him. Defensive line, Aiden Breeland, yeah. I mean, USC has not really been a serious contender for him, but I think that's more because of Aiden Breeland. Jericho Johnson would be another player, certainly, they still have a shot at that they would want to recruit, that they would want in this class if they're doing a great job recruiting locally. Cameron Fountain would be the out-of-state guy. That's a that's a player that you take, I think, in every class. Kind of gives me a little bit of those Kyle um more vibes out of Houston County, Georgia, back in the Pete Carroll era, a guy that's a five technique that USC's recruiting as a potential stand-up rush in, but I think with his size, he's more of a five technique, but a guy that you do say, hey, there's one of those guys you want to cherry pick out of the region. Um, Elijah Newby is another guy out of Connecticut that I think you want to cherry pick out of the region. A very good player, but you know who else are good players at USC recruited that they're missed? Dylan Williams, who was committed at one point out of Long Beach Poly, and Kingston Valley Amuasa, who USC recruited very hard, who ends up at Notre Dame. And then the defensive backs, Marcellus Williams, Zabian Brown, Dakota Fields, who was committed to USC, who decommitted and went to Oregon. And then you have the safety position, Marquise Gallegos, I think, would be in there. Uh, Jarvis Boltwright would probably be in there as an out-of-state guy, which kind of speaks to defensive back recruiting and, you know, how many guys you actually want to take a defensive back. But another guy you would probably take, if you could, if you're USC, is Peyton Woodyard out of that group. So that class, and again, this is, you know, these specific players. Maybe you'd have a guy that you would miss on or what have you, even, you know, in a good year under Pete Carroll. I don't know. But, I mean, we're just kind of looking at this, you know, within you know, sort of a, a certain margin of error this class right here that I just went through and, and with the addition of the guys like Brian Jackson, Xavier Jordan, Ryan Pelham, those players that they do have committed, that's the number three class nationally. Speak on it. So Sorry. that's a really good class built with local players that USC would recruit. Okay. These are not the wrong guys. These are guys that just USC missed on. So I think there is something to be said when people feel as though local recruiting isn't going as well as it should. And some of these guys, Dylan Williams and Brandon Baker specifically, have said flat out, 
we don't think USC is committed to recruiting the local guy and keeping the California guy at home. That's coming from them. That's not me saying it. That's them saying it. So I do feel like there's still a little bit of that copium, a little bit of that. We can go out of state and we can grab some Texas guys. And listen, if you're grabbing a bunch of guys that are four-star, five-star guys out of Texas or the DMV, I mean, of course. I mean, this is kind of like Greg Biggins' argument. Like, just take the best players regardless of where they're from. Of course, but that's not recruiting. That It's not a draft. <laughs> There's reasons why your ratio of success is going to be higher locally. What I'm saying is that it can be higher locally and you are still going – you're going to have good classes because of it. It's not like – there's just a bunch of three-star bums all over the place. Um, you know, maybe there's a little bit, and this would be reading between the lines of what Lincoln Riley saying that the California players are overrated. Now that's obviously a different discussion, but you know, we also see a lot of guys that are playing for different schools nationally, guys like Xavier Worthy, um, Brock Bowers, etc., that are doing very well at schools outside of the region, you know, or even inside the region. There's a bunch of California guys up at Oregon that are playing really well. There's a bunch of California guys, obviously, at Washington. We're going to see those guys this weekend playing against USC doing very well. So I don't buy that. I, I know that there's been this talk of demographics and how they've changed in California over the years, and there's not as many guys that are uh, going to the NFL from California. And my answer to that is, you're only going to have a class of 20, maybe 20 plus guys each cycle. These numbers, even if they're down, are not down enough where you don't have the advantage to be able to get a bunch of really good players recruiting locally first. I'm not saying you don't go out of state. You know, Pete Carroll did that. But in the Pete Carroll era, the mantra was we go out of state for guys that are first round picks. First round picks. It wasn't, it didn't always work out that way, but that was the mentality. USC did not do that under Clay Helton. They were going after guys that were clearly not going to be first round picks. Okay. Guys that are being recruited by Texas Tech and TCU and SMU. You didn't really see Texas offers there or Texas AM offers. USC has raised the bar in terms of the players that they are trying to compete for. Guys like Draylon Miller, who they still have a chance at. But they're also going after some other guys, which you get the sense it's not working out locally. So there's a quick pivot to go after the guy in Texas. And that hasn't really worked out for USC either. So, yeah, I, I just I understand the frustration and the narrative that is coming from the fan base when it comes to this type of stuff. I, I don't think it's one of those things that there's not valid concern and it should be dismissed right away, which you get some of that from other angles of the fan base that, you know, it's, it's, and again, it's all about, well, the context, context, context. Well, when you say stuff like we we're getting the right guys, I, I mean, the only argument is, okay, so were they the right guys when you lost this many games and, you know, this is not happening, et cetera, et cetera. I totally understand the right kind of guy that that's been, you know, a mantra. And that's been something said by a lot of other coaching staffs. Really Chris Peterson was one of the first guys to talk about it because he did so well at Boise state. They, they developed guys at Boise state. They clearly were not getting the top echelon 
of recruits uh, from from any particular state. You know, they had guys from Texas. They had guys from California. I mean, you're in Idaho, so you don't have a great uh, inherent recruiting advantage. But now Lincoln Riley does. He didn't even have that at Oklahoma. I mean, you had to recruit Texas. The best players you were getting in your class were more likely than not coming from Texas, California, or 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 Missouri. You weren't getting, you know, the the the, the ten best players in your class were from from Oklahoma. It's just not the way it works out. Oklahoma might have a guy here and there, but most of the time you have to go across state lines to be able to get the best players. You don't have to do that at USC, and really forcing yourself to do that, you put yourself as a disadvantage because you are going into someone else's backyard where they are the school that people grew up watching. Their uncle is the one that got the LSU sweater uh, at Christmas. Um, they're the ones whose you know, coach went to Alabama or Texas or Texas A&M. They have the connections there. And so those are the schools that you always heard about growing up, not USC. So again, when you go into the backyard, and you're trying to kind of reinvent yourself and say, oh, yeah, remember Reggie Bushman and Matt Liner? You remember those teams and how good USC can be? USC was good with, with, with California guys, you know? I mean, Lendell White was, was from Colorado, you know? And there were, there were some guys, again, cherry-picked, but the majority of those really good teams, there's a bunch of guys from California. And you know what? Guys like Jason Leach, um, you know, guys that weren't, you know, Champ Simmons, guys that weren't necessarily ranked super high. Um, but still were the right guys and they plugged in and they were able to develop those guys. And then, you know, the whole brick and mortar thing, bring in the star players like the Sean Cody's and, and then maybe Keith Rivers, who was uh, from Orlando, but was originally from Riverside. Um, some other guys, you know, where you had those angles, Fred Davis, et cetera. I mean, there's certainly always room to go after those guys. And USC has, you know, in terms of going outside of their region to recruit, more reach than most schools. You know, Texas A&M doesn't have that reach. Texas doesn't have that reach. Uh, Florida doesn't have that reach. Even although Urban Meyer did a pretty damn good job recruiting nationally at Florida, but he wasn't going to go and just decide, oh, you know, I, I don't need local players so much. I can go to Utah and I can go to New Jersey. And they did really good in the East Coast, the Northeast, with that staff plucking some good players. But the majority of those classes were all built on one Florida guys. Why? Because that's the easiest thing to do. There's a bunch of good players there. There's still a bunch of good players in California. You've got to build your foundation on that. And, and you've got to win those recruiting battles. And if USC is not winning those recruiting battles locally, it's really hard to see them being a championship level team. If you're going into Texas after everybody and you're going after guys in the DMV and that's the majority of your class mixed in with some porthole players, or I shouldn't say mixed in, but you know, basically a half and half of guys that are transfers and guys that are that are local. It's, that's that's a tough mix. That's a mix that I would say is maybe even unprecedented in terms of uh championship teams. I mean maybe you could look at some Notre Dame teams, some Nebraska teams and see how they're put together. But again, you're talking about programs that don't have an inherent recruiting advantages. They have no choice but to go to other places, Notre Dame's going into Chicago. They're coming out to California. They're going into Texas. They're going into Ohio. Uh, Nebraska, when they had their heyday uh, with uh, Jim Osborne, not Jim Osborne, Tom Osborne, 
and they were rolling. They were going into Texas. They're going into California. You had guys uh, that that were from all over the place because you can't just sit back in Lincoln and recruit guys from Eastern Iowa or excuse me, Western Iowa and and Nebraska. Um, but you know, with the the teams, you know, in California, the teams in Texas, the teams in uh, Florida, uh, Georgia. I mean, you do have to build really the the core of your class locally. Um, because it's it again, it's going to be and it should be what's the easiest if you're doing the right things, because those are the kids that are going to have people around them that are close to the program. They talk to people in the program. They know more about the day to day of the program. And if it's healthy, then they want to be a part of it. If it's not healthy, sometimes that is a bit of a red flag uh, as to what's going on. And maybe the culture isn't quite there. So it is very much a very interesting topic. And maybe we did talk about it for an hour. Um, I'm sure that uh, we could uh, discuss it more. But I mean, that's my thoughts on, on that particular comment, you know, just by itself, but also some other things that have been said uh, recently by Lincoln Riley when it comes to local recruiting and just how the recruiting class is going right now. And we know that they have wanted to put more emphasis on the high school uh, recruiting trail and and kind of wean themselves off to a certain extent of transfers, which stands to reason because if we're looking at the programs that are in the college football playoff and the programs that have been very successful at the highest levels, the Georgias, the Ohio States, the Alabamas, they are still very, very picky about transfers. I mean, Alabama lost, when did they lose like 17 players, I think out of that first window and they only picked up two guys that were transfers. They really put the emphasis on having a big high school class. So they're betting on their evaluations and their projections from high school players and building their culture from the ground up of freshmen being there and then weeding guys out that they don't feel like can play for them. And there's a lot more going out from the transfer portal than, than is coming in. So it, again, stands to reason the USC would want to follow that paradigm and do that and not necessarily have double digit transfers every year along with a double digit uh, recruiting high school class, you know, whether it's a little more transfers than high school guys, or it's even, it's still relative to the other programs out there, a lot of transfers that you're bringing in. And that always brings up the question of culture and, you know, is it a mercenary roster? The thing is it worked last year. And so that's, that's the tough thing, but you know what? I mean, going back to the clay Helton era, 2016. I mean, it was it was technically a great year for USC. They win a Rose Bowl. You know, it didn't start out that way, but it ended that way. And it for a while just kind of it confused people. Like, can Clay Helton really be the answer here? I mean, we know he's the adult in the room. That was like the best thing you could say about that hire. Is like, okay, maybe there's some immaturity there from the head coaching spot with Lane and then Sark. You know, maybe those jobs were just it was too big for them too early. You bring in a guy who's a little older who has a different approach, but at the same time had no experience as a head coach, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and his really association through USC was two failed staffs. And it's like, okay, so, so what? You, you're hiring a guy from two failed staffs. That's a, a bit of an odd thing. Um, but uh, from the cultural standpoint, obviously we get to the point where we get to 2017, 2018, you start to see, okay, it, it is what we thought it was going to be. And now the wheels are just coming off. 
more and more. You know, they, they put a wheel on here and they get the eight wins and then that wheel comes off again and they're back to five wins sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, you want to get away from that. You want to get away from uh, whether it's the coach speak that comes from that era or just sort of the recruiting practices, et cetera. And not to say that Lincoln Riley is following those footsteps at all, but it's uh, that's I can see where the interpretation from the fan base and why the fan base is so sensitive to that, because they don't want they don't want anything to do with that era. They knew it was a loser era when it was going on. Nobody needed hindsight to know what was going on. And there was that sort of, yeah, 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 but 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 2016, yeah, 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 but we just beat somebody or we, you know, there's always something you can cling on to to say it's it's not so bad. And you really know it's 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 not getting better. And it it really is that bad. So, you know, they want to separate from that era completely. And I understand it. I, I get it. And I and I don't think, you know, we should be dismissive of that. Yeah, point blank. I think they really do need to emphasize high school recruiting and move a little bit, move back from transfer portal recruiting. And I know with it's the same argument with both cases because, look, you can sign a kid out of high school and it doesn't pan out. You can sign a guy out of the transfer portal and it also doesn't work out. But it seems like it's more detrimental when a transfer portal guy doesn't work out because we're kind of seeing some of that now for whatever reason. I mean, like Keon Bars obviously had super high expectations for him for USC. And, you know, he hasn't been what most fans and media have expected him to be. Jack Sullivan, that was a really good pickup, hasn't been what USC expected him to be. You know, that offensive I mean, line. Have, I, I would I would interject, though, that they have not been what USC has expected them to be because we don't see them enough to really make that that claim. And so it's a matter of rotation and who's getting reps and they're not getting reps. That's because the coaches don't think they've earned those reps. So that is more of, yeah, USC's not feeling like they are playing to the level that they thought that they would. And I mean, you said earlier, you can make that claim either way. You can say, well, Corey Foreman, you know, you could even say Damani Jackson, you know, as a former five-star guy, has he played to the level people, uh, fans have expected him to play, et cetera, the, the performance there from a from a statistical standpoint, so on and so forth. And then, you know, throw Bear Alexander out there and say, look it, Bear Alexander was maybe one of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reasons, USC beats Cal last weekend. Because he, and, and you don't see it in the stat sheet, but he alone changed the whole defensive front. I mean, just the pressure that he was able to put, the disruptive nature of him in the middle of that offensive line, it, it killed Cal's uh, run game. It, it, it just changed everything, uh, really, when you when you watch that game back. And a lot of these throws and a lot of these things on third down, him just being in the quarterback's face, getting the quarterback off the spot, that has been an absolute, like, Man, absolutely hit it. That was all sevens right there. You know, you kind of you 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 hit that lever on the slot machine, and you never really really know what you're going to get. You you think okay, Jordan Addison, 
And this guy's a Blitnikov winner. Uh, you know, there's, there's a potential he could have gone to USC and it just didn't work out. It did. You look at Barry Alexander, there's less there to be able to evaluate. You know, you say, oh, he's got, you know, two sacks in the national championship game. Yeah, yeah. And they, they were already up by 35 points. But nevertheless, there's, there is sort of risk in, in your evaluations, you know, on both sides of the fence. You know, whether you're going heavy uh, transfer or you're going heavy uh, recruiting-wise out of the high school recruiting ranks, I do think that uh, – I mean, listen, I, I, if, if Lincoln Riley just said, you know what, we think that we are going to be able to win more games with transfers than we are trying to project high school players – I would say, okay, that's that's a new way to approach it. And nobody's come out and said that this that's what they want to do. I think Chip Kelly's strategy at this point is very much in line with that. I get the sense that they are really looking more at transfers being um, a key part to them turning over rosters than at the high school level. It just doesn't seem like they are very interested or very aggressive at the high school level building their program. Um, so, and there's definitely, and we talked about it before, there's definitely reasons. There's, there's, there's boxes there that get checked with going after transfers instead of high school players. It's just the paradigm as it stands right now, the most successful college football programs are still recruiting high school first. Now the argument would be those are established programs. Those are programs not trying to rebuild those are programs yeah. that have good players from the high school ranks that are now sophomores and juniors. So you don't need to go heavy. There's not a necessity to go heavy after transfers. And that's absolutely logical. And that absolutely makes sense. But USC's kind of used the transfer portal to try to get there. And you don't want to continue to just pile on, pile on, like you're chase. It's almost sort of like USC and their two point conversions. <laughs> you're chasing points. You're, you're sort of chasing an established roster to be able to recruit uh, high school players on top of, but I think, and this is more just going by what Lincoln Riley has said, the expectation and the want was this to be the year where they could do that, where they felt like they had an established roster, they turned it over enough that this was going to be the year where you put more emphasis on high school and you were going to have better high school football players. And certainly I, I, the, the, it looked like that was the going to be the case. And it, it looked like that coming out of like, we were in June and it's like, okay, it, it looks like that is going to be the case. And, and in terms of NIL and what have you, some of the players they had committed, there was a transition happening. And it was exciting. I mean, it was sort of like, oh, okay, well, Manasseh Atete, that's one we didn't see coming. So the sky is all of a sudden the limit. Now we're back into the era where USC can kind of recruit anybody. They can get anybody. Um, and then all of a sudden we got taken back down to earth and it's like, okay, no, it's going to be more kind of like last year. And they're going to need the transfer portal now to maintain. Uh, they might need to recruit uh, a quarterback out of the transfer portal that can compete with Miller Moss and uh, uh, Malachi Nelson. Nelson. There, there's there's got to be maybe, you know, another guy there. Um, there's going to have to be some guys that you're going to be replaced quickly because you don't have those guys that are coming through that are going to be sophomores from the high school ranks. You just don't have depth at certain positions. And so, yeah, that's, I think, when we're talking about expectations, that's sort of where – it's like, okay, you're expected to sort of move into the realm of the other 
college football playoff contenders, the, the teams that seem to be in that conversation year in and year out, and what they're doing. I am not sitting here saying that is the way. I, I I'm I'm not no, I I don't know that I I think that the transfer portal is too new, and building rosters this way is too new. My inclination is that that probably is the best way to go, based on what Alabama is doing and Georgia's doing and and, and their success, um, and also just the the standpoint of culture and just looking at it logically having guys in and out of the locker room and constantly, you know, just new players you're interjecting that are, that are guys that are going to play over the other guys that you actually did recruit at the high school ranks. I mean, I can see where that's going to be more difficult, you know, to, to build long-term doing that. Uh, but I don't know for a fact that you can't do it that way. You know, it's just never been done before. And clearly Colorado is going to be on that fast train where they're going to get a bunch of, you know, transfers again, and they're going to try to roll over their roster again. But at some point you do feel like when you have the opportunity um, and you can recruit those high school players and you can do so successfully and get the guys you want. Okay. Not the right guys, not just the guys you want, the guys you offer and you guys you brought in on official visits. Okay. It's kind of a tell. Those are the guys you really want. And you probably want those guys over the potential transfer, because that's the other thing about the portal the biggest negative to the portal is you don't know what that pool of talent is going to look like each year. You can project, and we have a couple of years behind us now where you're kind of thinking, uh, yeah, I mean, there should be like two or three linebackers. There should be more rush ends. It seems like there's a good amount of safeties. There's going to be like that one or two quarterbacks that you can get that are guys that could potentially come in to start for you right away. You know, you have – that feel like there's going to be a couple running backs. There's there's going to be certain players, but but there's always going to be that year when there's not. There's always going to be that year, just like in the high school ranks, which is you know a little easier, obviously, to project because that pool of talent is known to you. Uh, you know, freshmen in high school, guys in the 2026 class, it, you're already pushing to get commit. You already see what's happening, but with the portal there's a lot more unknown from that standpoint. So if you're putting all your eggs in that basket at a particular position, you're saying, you know what? You really don't see anybody that we're going to have a good shot at recruiting out of high school for whatever reason, you know, we've struck out on our top three guys. We're just going to go into the portal and that, <laughs> that guy's not there. You're SOL. And so that that's where the portal becomes um, a, bit of an issue you know if you're trying to continually build your roster turn your roster over uh, or even if you're just dependent on certain positions and, and I would say with defensive linemen I mean it's tough not to try to keep at least one or two spots open for a potential Bear Alexander because you see you see that's a guy you didn't really have a chance at out of high school and, and now you get him and you see the type of impact he can make. I mean, that is a huge part going forward for the defense, interior defensive line pressure. And from the high school ranks, and again, we talk locally, that's not a position where you're going to see a lot of immediate impact players coming through each cycle. So that's where you can use this as an additive. You can use this to supplement the high school ranks. But conversation here is, 
you know, you're you're kind of not just using it as a supplement. You're using it as a as a big part of your recruiting process and your roster building. Gerard, I think that's a good place to take a break for this podcast. You didn't quite reach an hour, but you actually got kind of close to doing it. So I applaud you, Gerard, for the effort that you uh, that you put on that you put in for this uh, the segment, which I know a lot of people wanted to hear your thoughts on. But when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about USC surviving Cal, a little bit more about the Washington game, and then do some listener questions. So we'll be right back after this break. You know what sound is coming. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And we're back. Gerard, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. How are you feeling, Chris? It's a little warm in here. I don't have the air going because I don't want it to mess up the background of this podcast. But I, during your your recruiting rant there, I did have to get up and turn the lights on because we reached that point where the light is getting get lower in the day. So uh, it became pretty dark in here. So I had to get up and uh, you didn't notice probably that I was gone, but I had to just go turn on the lights. But other than that, I'm holding up besides being a little bit, a little bit warm, but, but I'm good. The Santa Ana's are giving you uh, the sweats, huh? The, uh, the, it's a dry heat though. The problem is you're down there near the beach. So it's, it's not really as dry as it is out here. I mean, it was 87 out here today. It was pretty warm even last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, which just adds to uh, the the traffic, you know. Those little kids, man, you get some candy in them and some warm nights, and brother, they 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 are they're torpedoing up and down the street. I forgot to mention this topic, but I think I want to do it right now. Gerard, did you go to a game last Friday night? I did not. Okay, so 
No technical Friday night lights going on because obviously I was in Berkeley, did not go to a game up there. But it is playoff time for CIF in high school. So the games we'll be going to this week will be the first round of the playoffs. It's that time of the year for high school football. Week one, Bosco, modern day, some of those teams have their bye for their uh, Division One bracket. But there are plenty of good matchups going on this week, especially at Division Two. It feels like every game in that bracket is a good one. So, Gerard, why don't you walk us through some of the the more interesting games coming up for week one. Well, I think the most interesting game is going to be Upland at Los Alamitos. Uh, I do think Los Al probably has the talent to overcome, but Upland's a pretty good team. Uh, They just beat Ranch Cucamonga, I think, by a point at home to close out the regular season. And so that's a really, really good opening playoff matchup. You know, those two teams, are they're both very good teams. Los Al, you know, ended up playing in the open division against Modern Day last year. So that's a team that, you know, was a was a sectional state champion uh, finalist. Um, so that's a tough game for Upland. I don't know if Upland has the offensive firepower to be able to stay with Los Alamitos, but uh, they have a very good defense. So that's an interesting game. Maybe that's a game that uh, you go check out. Uh, Citrus Valley at Losinger. Citrus Valley, another very good team out here in the IE. Not a team with a ton of Division One talent. More of a just a good, well-coached, solid high school football team playing Losinger. Losinger has some guys here and there. You know, they're they're sort of one of those teams. Uh, Samu Moola is a 2026 linebacker who we've spoken to and we've uh, filmed on a couple of occasions already. Uh, one of the top 2026 linebacker and rushers. Uh, he's got a, a little bit of uh, Tui, Tui Pelotu to him. Um, we're going to see him develop over the next uh, couple years, but uh, one of the top players playing against a very good high school football team. So Citrus Valley making the long drive from Redlands out uh, to Lawndale. Uh, Chaparral playing at Oaks Christian. We'll probably cover that. Uh, Norda Vista at Loyola. Um, that's a good game for Loyola. We'll probably be at that now that you've got uh, Brandon Lockhart committed. Uh, maybe get uh, some more film of him. We've already actually covered Loyola, I think, a couple times this year and seen Brandon Lockhart play. Um, you know, some other games that are interesting, Vista Marietta playing at Pauly. I think Pauly's going to get that one. That That's a good game for them um, to open up. But uh, Vista Marietta is a good football team. I mean, it's another one of those things where this is not a team that just kind of snuck in. Uh, this is a decent football team and, and kind of a clash of, of of regions in Southern California. Palos Verdes is playing at Mission Viejo. Uh, Milliken out at Villa Park. Northview at Bonita is interesting. Northview actually saw Bonita host uh, Northview earlier in the season. Northview, I think they had one loss and Bonita was undefeated and Northview was able to beat Bonita at home. So this is the rematch for Bonita and Noah McHale who is a huge part of everything Bonita does. Uh, this is a revenge game for them uh, to beat Northview. Northview, another team. Not no real Division One talent on that team, but a very good up-tempo type of run team. That just They're just well-coached. And uh, a team that uh, has been able to, uh, to beat some folks uh, this year. And um, that's going to be an interesting rematch game. And then Edison, uh, Huntington Beach Edison. The uh, Fighting Greg Biggins are going to be out here at Ranch Cucamonga, which is going to be an interesting game. Edison's a very good team, very good tradition. 
Rancho's got the horses. They've got the guys. But Rancho, they they, they tend to tend to play undisciplined football. They have a lot of penalties, have turnovers. If Ranch Cucamonga is playing their end game and they don't turn the ball over and they don't have a bunch of penalties, they run away with this game. But this is the type of game that if you do, Edison is going to grind it out and they're going to be able to play and they, they'll be able to win. So a lot of, like you said, Division two, really good high school football games. Like these are going to be uh, very competitive games uh, where you have a ton of teams that, um, you know, you you could kind of uh, flip a coin with. Excited to get back out to a game on Friday, cover some playoff football. Again, modern day Bosco, the big boys, they are on by for the Division one bracket. So we'll probably be at those games next week, but really excited to get out to see some D2 action. And we'll get you caught up on all that and what happened for the first round of the playoffs, excuse me. So, Gerard, moving on, we do have to talk about a game that happened up in Cal Berkeley just a little bit. USC survives 50 to 49 in a shootout with the Golden Bears. Probably did not expect to have a shootout, but if you followed Alex Grinch's defense, you knew that there was a possibility <laughs> of Cal getting a get-right game for their offense and just going off. Jaden Cal Austin. becoming the, the Houston Oilers with Warren Moon. <laughs> right. Just straight, running all over USC, making throws all over USC. Jaden Ott, you know, some would say maybe a future Trojan through the portal, mm. but he was running wild in that first half. He did. USC is grateful they actually got banged up throughout the game. Only had one carry in the fourth down, which just not the same runner in the second half after getting injured. I believe it was a helmet-to-helmet kind of hit that kind of knocked him out of the game. Mason Cobb down there at the goal line. Mason Cobb uh, looking sudden and violent on some of his tackles 15 tackles. 15 tackles. He was credited for three missed tackles, but I think you take that with the way he was flying all over the ball. Eric Gentry, as you mentioned earlier, kind of took over that game. I don't think they win this game without – bear and that angry giraffe of Eric Gentry. They needed those two wild animals playing. Obviously, you saw the difference that bear made. But Eric Gentry, my goodness, just showed why we had him so high on our most important list early in the season. He That's the type of player he is. Forced a fumble, almost forced another interception. Had an interception, almost had a second interception, which is all over the place. He did have that kind of costly personal foul there at the end on the critical drive. But this was obviously a game you had no idea if USC was going to win. Credit to them for coming back from 14 points down. But we've seen this game before where they go up, then the defense allows the game-tying touchdown at the end there. Credit to Justin Wilcox for going for two, for having the cojones to go for two. Didn't work out for them, but you know we, we would not have been shocked, Gerard, if that had ended up being you know a QB run for the two-point conversion and USC has a minute to try to score, and they do not score. And USC loses to Cal on the road. Yeah, there's a lot of the same old, same old, you know, with this game. And another offense, which is why we don't need to spend a ton of time. Is yeah, of- that 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 has been uh, awful, and then you know comes to life against that USC defense. So yeah, we don't want to beat a horse to death. Of course, we've talked. It's about way dead. It's way <laughs> dead, Gerard. It's it just bones a, at this point. It's bones it, and decomposing at this point. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're beating flies away at this point. Um, but uh, USC does not cover, but they win. Um, so I get a little docket in the, you know, the the prediction 
<laughs> which is always so such a hard thing. You know, it's like, well, I don't think USC is going to lose, but are they going to win by two scores? Probably not. Um, it was interesting that we've had a poster. Pie Boy has posted this on the Paris dial. The quarters with runs versus pass and how many points USC is scoring in those quarters, the, the ratio run to pass. And he's done it, I think, the last two or three games. And the ratio of running on drives being almost always better with scoring than not. The quarters where it's very pass-heavy drives, USC's not scoring. And that's a very interesting point, and that's something that we have reiterated throughout the season. And again, we don't want to regurgitate, you know, these narratives that just seem to not go away. But it is interesting because, I mean, they did run the ball, you know, towards the end of the game there, and you get Marshawn Lloyd with that huge run, and it's just like, yeah, I mean, he seems to be capable of doing that once or twice every game. And you'd like to see him do it more, <laughs> you know? And so that's that. That's an interesting, um, another just another sort of talking point to the run versus pass and what USC is not doing. Um, I think um, watching the post game and the nonsense with, you know, guys basically just uh, sitting in chairs and not having a podium, it just reminds me of why Cal is not going to the Big Ten and why they should never have been considered even for the Big Ten, uh, just showing that they are not a high-level football program or athletic department, really, in any way. Uh, I thought that was just sort of like, ugh, how embarrassing, you know? And they were uh, very much um, – I mean, everything was about beating USC. You know, the, the the telecast was about reminiscing over these mediocre Cal teams that had beaten USC. Uh, obviously, the Pac-12 and Cal are, you know, hand-in-hand in terms of um, – you know, two sort of defunct institutions, which uh, they they love they they really you know enjoyed each other's time, and uh, they are both fading a, a bit. You know, at least certainly from the Trojan fan point of view. Um, and, and again, you know, going back to what you talked about with uh, Eric Gentry, who will go down as one of the greatest mysteries. You know, there's been some <laughs> mysteries here uh, in in peristyle lore. Uh, one of the greatest mysteries is how Graham Harrell and that offense that threw the ball 60 times a game, you had three guys go to the NFL, three guys with, you know, I think it was more than a thousand yards receiving or, or maybe it was a hundred yards uh, receptions on the same team. And you had Tyler Vaughn, you had Michael Pittman and you had Amon Ra. No, it was Amon Ra St. Brown. And then you had Drake London. You had this incredible pass offense you had all these guys that are developing going to the NFL and you have this great tradition and yet Oregon is lapping you in wide receiver recruiting. And that, that's one of the greatest mysteries. <laughs> we never, never figured that one out. We couldn't figure out how that was happening. We, we still haven't figured out how we still don't know. Jay Toya got his elephant head in a helmet. We still don't know. These are, these are just mysteries we will never solve. Why Eric Gentry has not been a bigger part of the defense after he was so impactful last year is he healthy? Is he not healthy? You know, one of those great mysteries, but certainly was a guy that came in there. And, and again, it was, I don't know if it's a light bulb that went off with Mason Cobb or just, he said, zero Fs. I'm just going to go out there and play and stop looking at his stupid wristband. 
he just looked like he was out there playing more violent. He was hitting guys, tackling guys, and they were going down. It looked like Mason. He Cobb, was playing football. He was playing. Football. Had, it looked like Mason Cobb at Oklahoma State, who's an old conference player, and not a guy that's like not sure where his angle is. And 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 this is the repeat of you know uh, Taka Curtis shouldn't be in there, and oh no no no, uh, Rayshon Davis shouldn't be in there. Oh no no no, we should be have Shane Lee should be in there. It's it's this you know that everybody's always looking for the next person. You know the fan base is it's like having a quarterback that's not playing real well, it's always a second string quarterback that's going to be the answer because it's the quick fix. That's the easy fix. They don't want to know. They don't want to talk about how it's, you know, there's more going on there, but there obviously is. But this is a game where you had Eric Gentry in there. He was just doing what he does, make plays, even though maybe he doesn't look 100% healthy, he still seems to be around the football and still seems to make plays. And you had Mason Cobb just going out there and, and making tackles and guys going down you know, solo tackles, and you had Barry Alexander out there playing, you know, like a bear against bears, and he was the bigger bear, and he was winning, and uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting game, you know, just USC coming back, and uh, uh, the offense is, is scoring 50 points and still does not look like it's in sync at all. You know, they're struggling to kind of find some rhythm. The offensive line, and this is the, the kind of the oddity right now, trying to figure out what offensive line is showing up for USC. It's not what offense, what defense. You kind of know what to expect um, just in general from, from USC's defense. You know, you're not going to see any shutouts here. <laughs> but from the offensive standpoint, I mean, you know, Caleb's going to be able to make plays. You're going to get, you know, if you, if you run the ball, you're going to get some nice runs. But the question is, what the hell is going on with the offensive line? Because they played really well against Utah. They look good against Utah. Utah's defensive front is much better than Cal's. And yet against Cal, they, they, they were all over the place, man. They couldn't figure out what they wanted to do, especially early in the game. And Caleb was running around for his life, and, and he's not making those throws now. And again, I think that has a lot to do with tendencies. I think defenses just had time to watch him. They know when he goes to a certain side of the field, there's a certain route he's trying to throw to. They just kind of know where that ball is necessarily going. It's not an easy enough throw. Granted, I will admit that in this game, Caleb missed some throws. There were some throws that were there. Brandon Rice, uh, Brandon Rice was open. Uh, he threw one high to Zachariah Branch. He hasn't been as accurate either. So it's, it's, it's a combination of things in terms of when people start talking about that regression. I think part of it is regression, but a large part of it is also progression from the defenses that have already seen Lincoln Riley's offenses, which – you know, does bring up that conversation everybody's having right now that's a college football fan about Michigan stealing signs, et cetera, et cetera. You know, how much does that kind of stuff play in? I mean, I think it plays a big part into it. I, I've said before, I kind of scoff a little bit about some of this because it's part of football. It's been happening. Is it, you know, against the rules? I mean, in some instances, it is against the rules. In other instances, I, I, I don't know. I think it's a bit more ambiguous. If you look across the field and you kind of figure out what's going on over there, because teams are not being real, real, real good about, you know, hiding their signals and et cetera. So uh, nevertheless, uh, it, it, interesting game. You know, I think people felt like, OK, hey, it was a win, you know, on the road. And that's always difficult. Uh, and, and Cal has been that program like Oregon State that can catch USC. So there, there, there was a lot of criticism, a lot of people that are not happy with the way the team is playing, but also, hey, you know what? At this point, a win is really a win. Now we got to focus on Washington. Nobody's really going to give us a chance. You know, maybe we're able to get one of these big ones at home uh, when people aren't, you know, necessarily expecting it. 
and uh, we can be the underdog, you know, for once and actually uh, play a good game. And again, would be the biggest win under Lincoln Riley. Thank you for setting that up in terms of a setup for the next topic, which is looking at USC versus number five, Washington. Look, everyone was very disappointed in USC's win, 50 to 49 over Cal. But Gerard, I suspect no, no not did. everybody. You just you contradicted me. Not everybody. Not but everybody I, was disappointed. I mean, we we have to take small victories, Chris. But but I'm but I'm also saying a lot of people were felt unsatisfied by fifty to forty. Yeah, over I, Cal. I think they're satisfied. Forty nine points to Cal, definitely. Yeah, there's, but it, yeah. But what agree. I'm saying is, if USC beat Washington fifty to forty nine, nobody would care. Is right. what I'm saying. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. And maybe that happens. Maybe that doesn't happen. I don't know. Whatever the case, a win here would be massive. And who cares if it's by 10, 15, uh, half a point, doesn't matter. If it's 40, if 50 to 49, 55 to 13, doesn't matter. It would be just as impressive for USC to get the win over number five, Washington. Now, we didn't do... This kind of look ahead for Cal, you know, kind of where we do the three things we want to see because it ended up being things that did not happen in the game. Things so that we, never the, happened. <laughs> yeah. The things that we uh, – and we didn't do that for Cal, and they ended up winning. So are we kind of jinxing it by doing it, bringing it back for the Washington game? Or does it really matter? I mean, no. Uh, they didn't – we did it for Notre Dame. <laughs> Fair enough. We did it for Notre Dame. <laughs> Those Fair things enough. did not happen and then some. Against Notre Dame, yeah, I, I think the um, the superstition around the podcast is pretty much uh, the bottom has fallen out of that long ago. Uh, They'll find term, something. They'll find something to hook on. Right? I, but you know, I under I get it. I understand it. You know, it's the whole you know, the, the 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 bumpers versus dumpers, and everybody's looking for that thing that they can grab onto and run with to back up their way of thinking and watching the team and following the team. You just gotta understand different people follow the team and, and and for different reasons whether they're alums or just fans it doesn't matter man i we have we we we've interacted with so many people at tailgates we've interacted with so many people just you know via pms people get banned and then you hear their whole background as to you know why they're why they're following usc and it's like wow okay cool i mean you meet people in person at the tailgate and the guy's a doctor and you're like how are you 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 can barely spell your your own handle on the posts and you're Sitting there lobbing insults at players. You passed <laughs> the bar. You passed the bar, sir. It's uh, it's wild. But anyways, uh, nevertheless, give me three things, Gerard. Give me three things. What we would, what I would like to see from USC, and and it's very similar, week in and week out. I think <laughs> one of the biggest things: get rid of big twenty-yard plus plays in the second half. Just don't, just don't have them. Just play defense. Don't allow them. It's what's keeping teams, if you have a lead in these games, and it's giving teams bigger leads when you're trying to make comeback. I mean, this is one of the biggest issues that have been plaguing the defense through the past two years, really, is big plays, uh, whether through the ground or the pass. I think more so in the passing game more recently, you know, where where they've had these issues. And it's funny, going back to the Cal game, there was a point where I thought Cal was going to go full Mike Mothership offense. 
Mike Mothershed offense is something that David Shaw and Stanford used to win a lot of games. And Cal had a series there where they were just throwing the ball downfield and getting pass interference calls. And in the Pac-12, David Shaw realized you can get away with that, that you, that can be a part of your offense. Just throw the 50-50 ball out there. Maybe you catch it. Chances are if you don't catch it, the ref is going to throw a flag and you're going to get 15 yards out of it. And Cal actually got consecutive, I think, PI penalties. And they were going for three and almost got three. And I'm thinking they're just going to start throwing this ball up the sideline on the cornerbacks. And they're going to just keep getting 15-yard penalties because that's what you do in the back 12. And they got away from it. It was interesting. And that was, I think, very fortunate for USC because I just don't know – if that was going to go their way, if they just kept throwing the ball, this is going to be one of those games where Washington part of their offense is just chucking the ball deep and they've got better receivers than Cal. So not allowing those plays, not giving the penalties and not allowing these big, you know, 50 yard plays, these 40 yard receptions. That's a big key to USC winning this game. I would say protecting Caleb Williams better is also important because that is something that we've seen less of this season we we've seen some pass protection breakdowns and people are going to say oh caleb's this caleb that but when caleb is consistently having to run out of the pocket um you know it it's something that it's it's not good for the offense you're, you're all of a sudden now it's becoming street ball and you're hoping your guys are going to make some plays and what have you and they just haven't been so i i would like to see uh some better pass protection and maybe some of this also has to do with Caleb Williams just getting the ball out of his hands. Maybe it has to do with less of this, you know, option option at the line of scrimmage and just, you know, go with what's there. And um, not every play has to be the best play. It has to be, you know, the play that's going to be the big play. Just move that ball and, and get that ball out of your hands and, um, you know, help your offensive line a little bit. But certainly the pass protection and no turnovers. Can't have turnovers in this game. USC is starting to turn the ball over more. And that was a big thing last year where their turnover margin was just – it was the best in the country. And this year it hasn't been. And so that's a big deal. That was a big deal against Utah. Um, that was a big deal, obviously, in the Notre Dame game uh, where you're, you're setting up you know, Notre Dame for direct touchdowns. Big deal there. So I, I would say that was – that's the third thing. You know, you, you definitely have to take care of the ball. And that should be something, particularly at home – it's easier to do for whatever reason you get rattled and, and turnovers on the road, they kill you, but they seem to be more prevalent on the road. You shouldn't have turnovers, or on at home. You shouldn't have turnovers. For me, I have Michael, Michael, make Michael Penix uncomfortable. Washington does a really good job of protecting Penix. Also, they get the ball out obviously really quick, which has limited the ability to get Penix down on the ground. They've only allowed five sacks. That's tied for number three in the country. And we know this Washington offense is going to take shots down the field. Help your secondary out. Help your cornerbacks out by just making him a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not saying you have to sack him 10 times in this game, but move him up a spot, make him dance a little bit, and then maybe you can you know, get in there for a sack or two. But you just can't let him stand back there all day and get those shots off for this Washington offense. The USC pass rush has taken a step back. You know They haven't been getting to the quarterback consistently i don't think they had a sack against cal and they maybe had one against utah so you have to do something to get michael Penix off his game or it's going to be a very long night for that secondary i have 
Don't let it be a get-right game for Washington's run game. The passing attack for Washington is their bread and butter, close to 400 yards per game. Washington doesn't really run the ball successfully. You know, I think they're just barely over 100 yards per game. But we've seen a struggling aspect of a team's offense <laughs> goes off yeah. against against. That's, a, that's a, unfortunately that's almost a predictable thing there, where it's yeah. it does feel like uh, there's going to be this real balanced attack all of a sudden. So if we look up and Washington has run for 198 yards and going into the fourth <laughs> quarter, something went very, very wrong. You cannot have that happen. Again, we're beating those flies away from the corpse of this horse. So we'll see if that happens. But, yeah, Washington has not really been a running team. So are they going to be a running team Saturday night in the Coliseum? I don't know. Obviously, they're looking at what Jaden Ott did against uh, USC in that that first half, and they're like, Okay, maybe we can we can pop some runs. Don't let them pop some runs. That that's my point. And then third, this is a big game. This is a, a little bit of a desperate game for you. Your back's against the wall. You don't have sort of the. I know you know a lot of recruits are coming sold out. You don't really have the pressure that Washington has on them. You know they have the pressure. They played poorly the last two weeks. They are trying to drive for a college football playoff and the Pac-12 championship. And Michael Penix is a front runner for the Heisman. They have all this pressure on them. You know, yeah, you're still USC. You're still the bigger brand. But you can play a little bit looser. I just want you to throw some haymakers. Let's see some haymakers being thrown in this game. Teams are getting haymakers off on USC. It's time maybe the Trojans dial up some of their own and, and you know, take a shot every once in a while. Uh, it's a big game. Big game. Uh, national TV. Number five team undefeated. You know, it's time to throw throw a little bit of uh, special stuff out there. So that's those are my three things, Jordan. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the run game is definitely one of those things that uh, you know, there's so many teams that their weakness is all of a sudden become this strength against that USC defense. USC's anti kryptonite. I don't know <laughs> if that exists, but they're anti kryptonite. I I you know the argument. And it's hard to play devil's advocate towards this, but if I was had a gun to my head and had to, I could see where you're saying, okay, let the thing that this team doesn't do to beat teams be the thing that you give them, right? Take away their strength, and obviously you're going to give them something, but it's the thing that they're not accustomed to beating teams with. Um, but the problem is USC ends up giving up both things, and it doesn't go well. It's like we're gonna get away, we're gonna stop this one thing, and then they let the other thing beat them, and then the other thing that they were stopping at some point, all of a sudden they they can't stop that either. So yeah, it's one of those deals where uh, that's that's going to be an interesting part of this game. You know, what can you do against Penix? Can you force him to make some bad decisions? He can be a little bit of a riverboat gambler. He will run and gun and has not been as accurate uh, as Caleb Williams has been in the past, uh, certainly like last season. Um, but uh, yeah, there are definitely good points there. And, and certainly I think the big plays, like you want to see USC get some big plays, you know, and grab some momentum potentially. You're playing at home. It's going to be a big crowd. Um, you you want to be able to kind of swing things you know, momentum wise and, and use that crowd. And that's a big deal. And at the same time, just get away from, you know, having these drives that are like a minute 10 and the, the, the opposing team just they score so quickly, you know, you have a lead at halftime and what has 
happen time and time again is that third quarter, man. USC just gives up these a couple of series where it's just too quickly they allow these scores, bang, 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 and all of a sudden, you know, a 10-point lead, a 14-point lead is no longer a lead, and that's uh, that's just you just can't do that. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's some pressure on USC, certainly, uh, as you said, in terms of trying to get back to expectations at some level, but uh, maybe more uh, pressure on Washington, you know, playing a road game and, um, you know, never having really seen USC before. USC's got talent. They've, they've got dogs, you know. Uh, Washington has seen that with Oregon. You know, they've seen a team that's got a lot of good players, uh, and they were able to, to beat Oregon, but at home. And, you know, it's like with Utah. Washington's not quite the same team on the road as they are at home. Playing up at Washington is, is difficult. It's tough. And uh, Oregon almost beat them at home. And so, you know, that's obviously going to be something that's uh, going to be difficult for USC when they go to Oregon and they got to play Oregon at home. But it should work to their advantage when they have to host Washington at home. All right, Gerard, we're going to jump into some listener questions. And as a reminder, you can email us at podcast at uscfootball.com. Just make sure you put the composite 10K hurricane recruiting podcast, whatever in the subhead, and it will go to my inbox. Gerard, we have. Three submitted questions. One's kind of a two-parter, but let's try to let's try to knock these out, Gerard. Let, let's so we can go enjoy some uh, leftover candy. <laughs> okay, okay. The first one I'm going to do from Tony. It feels like the Lincoln Riley era started off better than expected, but the obvious growing pains of this year's team and the ghosts of the soft post Pete Carroll scholarship production and Clay Helton era is lingering to this day. I'm noticing that recruiting is going. Well, okay, but it seems like we are still lacking in high school recruiting, meaning getting big, tough guys so far. My question is, do you think that Lincoln Riley will turn the corner by recruiting top talent in any given position, including O-line, D-line? I believe that this year's era, this era's USC team hasn't had a signature win where they excite the USC athletes and they need to show their relevance in today's college football world. Instead, it seems like they're relying on the past and the mentions of Reggie Bush to kids who were not born or old enough yet to experience the last great era of SC, Tony. I mean, Gerard, I feel like you basically hit on those, (laughs) hit on that that. question, both whether you're talking about recruiting locally or just what we talked about with this potential game being one of those signature type of wins where, you know, you're showing that you can play at a level of a team that's expected to be in the college football playoff. And, and they did that to some extent last year. They played Utah, at least close at Utah, but then you lose to Tulane, which, you know, is a game that USC should win by three touchdowns on paper. So, you know, this is a, a game that it, it's a high ranked opponent. It's not quite as national marquee from that standpoint as, you know, a, a maybe out of conference win would be, but it's a very big win locally and it will definitely help you locally um, be able to just move the needle a bit. And, um, you know, the question is, can Lincoln Riley get there? I, I believe Lincoln Riley is a very smart coach. I believe he knows how to micromanage a football program. I do think he is learning to some extent, um, 
not everything that he did at Oklahoma prepared him for what he has to do here at USC. This is a rebuild. It's not just kind of keeping the program going where the former head coach is still very much around and present. You know, Bob Stoops didn't just go away. He wasn't fired, really. Um, he still he kind of stepped down and there was some odd stuff and some rumors about why he stepped down. But he was still very active. I mean, he's, I believe, still a coach in the AFL. So he was still, you know, around enough. And, and when it came to maybe questions of, you know, with boosters and how to handle media, things of that nature, I think he was still there and much as an advisor as anything. And you come into this situation with USC and it's it's really like trying to reboot and rebuild from the ground level uh, because you've had so much turmoil with past coaching staffs, whether they lacked uh, the ability to be able to, you know, build their own strong culture or you had sanctions. There's just a lot of things that, you know, you're having to deal with that you didn't get in Oklahoma. But nevertheless, the one thing that I sort of hold on to looking at Lincoln Riley moving forward is that he did make some changes to his philosophy and to his approach at Oklahoma. When he first got there and was a coordinator, I think he had certain ideas of, of how he would run the program and wanted to run the program. And he did adjust, you know, particularly with running the football and trying to interject uh, some things from a offensive standpoint that balanced his attack more, realizing that you cannot be Texas Tech, you cannot be Washington State and win the big games. You can win games with those types of programs and those types of offenses, and you can have good seasons, but you are not going to consistently be a winner at the highest levels if you are one-dimensionally offensive. And you certainly aren't going to do so as a pass-first, pass-happy team. That has been established through college football and just football in general. You do have to have some physicality. You are going to have to run a ball. There are going to be third and threes, third and twos, where the defense knows what you're doing, you know what they're doing, and you got to do it anyways. And so I think he embraced some of that at Oklahoma. And so I get the sense, you know, yes, there are picadellos, there are things that you worry about and you're concerned about, but I don't think you can make a judgment at this point in time as to which way they're going to go. And there are still enough there that he did at Oklahoma where you get the sense that he is smart and he does have a statesman approach to things, which is a step in the right direction. Um, he can micromanage and does want to be involved at multiple levels with the football program, which I think is kind of a must. I think an elite coach, you sort of expect that from, uh, for better or for worse. But you do have to sort of give him the keys and have him run things his way. And you back it. You back it 100%. Uh, and, and, and that goes towards if he decides, you know what, Alex Grinch, I think he needs another year. That is what it is. You paid Lincoln Riley a lot of money for not just his wins at Oklahoma, but for his judgment as a football coach, his IQ as a football coach, his ability to manage as a football coach. And so you're kind of all in from that standpoint, and you trust that his decision-making going forward, he's going to do the things that are best for the football program, not for his ego, not for trying to 
do something that's on this sort of smaller level of trying to get trophies and Heisman's and all that kind of stuff, stat chasing, et cetera. It's more, okay, we have to do this. This is where we have to pivot. We've learned our lesson uh, in this particular aspect of the program. This is not working, whatever aspect it is, whether it's recruiting, whether it's defense, whether it's your philosophy and how you're running practices. Because I do think, and not to go into a tangent, you know, in another direction when it comes to more of the team and handling the team, but I do think while Trojan fans feel like just hire a name defensive coordinator, I hear people dropping Manny Diaz's name, which I'm very skeptical of, but people talk about Jim Leonard, Leonard, um, or Leonard, excuse me, uh, talking, you know, that right the first time, baby, Jimmy, Jimmy Lake. Um, no, it's not, it's not Jim Leonard. It's no, you Jim said Leonard. Leonard. You said Leonard, Leonard the first time. Uh, I, I felt like I said Leonard, but anyways, never, never, uh, I digress. Um, the various different names is this quick fix, like boom, boom, you're a national championship team just by hiring a defensive coordinator who is successful elsewhere and with other teams and with the personnel you have, it's just boom, it's it's going to be a snap of a finger. That's all Lincoln Riley has to do. And I think it gets you probably 80% of the, the way there to, to, to a national championship contending program. If you're, you know, you, you have a, the right defensive coordinator, you know, with the right personnel and the right scheme and everything and everything lines up for you. But I think there's still more that needs to be done philosophically in terms of practice and methods and some things behind the scenes that are not being done. And so that's still a question, you know, whether you say, okay, I got to take this step back and look at making sure that I am giving, you know, my defense uh, enough attention and, and how we practice giving them enough preparation day in and day out to make sure that they are getting what they need to, as well as the offense. You know, we're not spending too much time in seven on seven, or we're not spending too much time in Indo or whatever it is, because we want to make our pass offense, the best pass offense in the nation. I think there has to be that greater sort of take a step back and look at philosophically, what can we improve? What can we do to become a more balanced football program in general? And then obviously auditing the NIL situation and, and, and other aspects that are not just with the team and with the personnel on the team. So, yeah, there's a lot that's um, that's going on there that uh, has to be addressed during the offseason. Um, it's not quite the quick fix that I think uh, Trojan fans would hope it would be. Um, but, again, you, you have to force yourself to go back to that four-win season going into the season. Not not the four win season itself, and Dante Williams is already interim head coach. Go back preseason and sort of where you were mentally and what you wanted to see from the program and what would be an acceptable turnaround within the first two years of that. And it's hard to do, but if you do that, it it kind of brings you back down to earth a little bit and you have a little more even keel expectation of sort of where USC is at and where they can go. But the ultimate question of is like, can Lincoln Riley be that guy? I think he can be. And again, there, there's some things that I am skeptical about. There are some things that are definitely concerning. But I don't know that we're at a point yet where we're actually making that judgment call. I'm certainly not the guy that's, you know, trying to jump to the shark and, you know, get ahead of everybody and say, oh, no, no, you know, this is how it's all going to be. This is my crystal ball and whatever. I, I don't like doing that. I think that there's still data 
points to be um, absorbed in, in this season and, and then we get on to the next season. And we said this when Lincoln Riley was hired. Uh, you go back, check the receipts. It takes a good three years for the culture to change within a program. It's not going to happen in year one. It's not going to happen in year two. Ignore what the coaches are telling you in these pressers. Ignore what the players are telling you in these interviews. It's it, They're going to say whatever they're going to say. And, and hopefully they don't believe it. Hopefully they're just telling you that and, and patronizing us all when it comes to talking about culture. But there's too much with accountability. You have to go through these growing pains. You have to, there has to be lessons. There has to be losses. There, there has to be issues that come up where wrongs can be righted to where everybody gets on the same page and realizes, damn. So it's like that for everybody. And we need to all come together and be on the same page. And this is the way we do things. And then you do those things over time, repeatedly, repeatedly. And then the new pro players that come in the program, you know, they're like, oh, wow, everybody's sort of shoulder to shoulder here. Like, I, I you know, I got to get with the program if I want to be a part of this thing. I don't think that happens in two seasons. I don't think it happens in a year. I don't care if you won 11 games. It takes time to, to, to build that winning sort of culture. So we're just not there yet in terms of like making that determination whether, you know, it's a it's a it's going to happen or it's not going to happen. But I, I do, again, think that Lincoln Riley is very smart. Um, I think he has a history where he has gone back and he has changed his approach to some things. And you hope, you know, that adjustment is made going forward because clearly, you know, they're not a championship team right now. Our next question comes from Bobby. Question for the Cilantro boys. If the DC was released at the end of the season, does it hurt, help, or stock neutral our 2024 defensive recruiting class? Would assistance need to be in place for for a recruit to really consider USC? I would venture to say it hurts, obviously, in the short term. And I don't think you need a full defensive recruiting staff to be in place, but you definitely need some of the assistants to be in place because it would be very tough to get a position, a kid to recruit for a, in a specific position when they have no idea who is going to be coaching them. So I would always venture towards it hurting than quote unquote helping or it being quote unquote stock neutral. I don't see it helping just because there's not nearly enough time at the end of the season to do a lot, unless you had somebody lined up. And if you have somebody lined up, he's probably not currently in a job right now. So it's just not a lot of time to be able to come in, hire somebody new. And if you're bringing in a new defensive coordinator, as I said before, you have to open uh, the potential to just having a whole new defensive staff. I don't think there's any, oh, you got to keep this guy, you got to keep that guy. And I'm normally of the opinion for recruiting purposes, if you were bringing in a head coach, you do want to have at least one or two staff members that are carryover so there is some continuity and you don't lose an entire class if there's something to be said for keeping that class together. But I think, yeah, there's definitely a sense that uh, now I would say this, you've only got a few players in that defensive class that are guys that you like would really want to hold on to, right? Cameron Fountain, I think is one of those players. I think Elijah Newby 
is one of those players. Uh, it would definitely hurt you because they have relationships with, I mean, particularly Roy Manning. I mean, I think with both of them, I think Roy Manning is the name that comes up the most. So if you were to bring in a new uh, defense coordinator and he says, you know what, I'm, I want a whole new staff. I want all my guys. Um, there's a good potential that you probably lose your best two defensive recruits in the class. But I wouldn't guarantee it only because I do think Lincoln Riley is a good recruiter. And this is something that, you know, it, there was a lot of pushback about this when I said that Clay Helton was a good recruiter. And people say he can't, he's not a good recruiter. Look at the recruiting classes. He's clearly not, not a good recruiter. And I'm and I'm like, well, you gotta understand there's different, there's different dimensions to being a recruiter. Okay. There's the uh, ability to evaluate, and there's the ability to sell, and then you also have the evaluation and the, the scouting aspect of it. And if you're recruiting guys that maybe aren't, you know, big time five-star guys, but you're getting guys that you're developing and they're turning into draft picks, then you're a good recruiter. Like you're doing a good job. Even though you weren't out there with all the five stars and four stars, you're still getting players and you're turning those players out. Um, Kyle McDonald was a very good recruiter for Utah. He didn't have a bunch of five-star guys he was bringing in, but the guys he was bringing in and finding, he was developing them and, and producing guys that were going uh, to be conference players. Some of them go to the NFL. So I think you know, with Clay Helton, he was a good salesman. He always came off well in home. Parents always spoke well of him, but he didn't produce from a development standpoint. And that was always going to be to his detriment. It was always going to be this other thing that was going to hold him back. I think with Lincoln Riley, he's also a guy that gets mentioned as a, as a head coach that has a specific relationship with players and their players, even guys in the 2025 class, like Noah McHale, Noah McHale told me he talks to Lincoln Riley twice a week. I mean, that's, he's pretty, pretty involved. There's not a lot of head coaches that are going to talk to a junior in high school twice a week. So Lincoln Riley is doing that. You know, he's clearly involved uh, with, uh, you know, the 2026 class. Those players have mentioned in my name. So there would be some potential um, I wouldn't expect it, but there would be some potential to maybe retain those players, even despite losing uh, the entire defensive staff, just because of Lincoln Riley. And of course, Lincoln would make those calls and say, listen, we're going to go get somebody. He's going to be great. And we're going to turn this thing around. And the reasons you want to be at USC are still there. The trajectory of the program is still going upward. But we need to make some changes defensively. The The bigger issue outside of just relationship is what kind of defense are you going to run? And does that new defensive coordinator come in and say, oh, yeah, Cameron Fountain, you can be a stand-up defensive end. Or does he come in and maybe say, listen, Cameron, you're an NFL guy, but you need to have your hand on the ground. Like We need to develop you into a five technique, and you're going to be in a great five technique. You're not going to be a pretty good rush end. You're going to be a great five technique, and that's what we want to sell you on. You know, is there enough time, again, process-wise, if these guys all want to sign in December, to be able to bring that guy in and to have that conversation? I don't know. But, um, yeah, it's 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 hard to, to think that it's just, you know, unless you're bringing in somebody that's a great recruiter and already at a major program that could actually bring in recruits. And this is the same thing we kind of talked about with the – change of a head coach. 
you know, what guys are out there that have a good recruiting class already and they can bring guys with them, you know, a James Franklin type of guy or Lincoln Riley type of guy, which this is exactly what happened. I mean, he ended up bringing uh, really Brown and uh, Malachi Nelson and Makai Lemon. I mean, that was part of what made the 2023 class really good and uh, getting really Brown for the 2022 class. He was one of the top players that they were able to sign. Um, so yeah, you probably aren't going to get that. You're not going to get that lateral move of uh, defensive coordinator in another program, unless you went after like a Tosh Lapoy, who's defensive coordinator at Oregon. Um, but I don't foresee USC doing that and making that move. And Tosh Lapoy has only been a defensive coordinator under head coaches that were defensive play callers. And so that's always something you got to kind of keep in mind. You kind of have to be wary about when you're going to get a guy, but that opens up the litany of questions of who do you bring in if you're going to bring in somebody? What are you emphasizing? Are you emphasizing recruiting? Most defensive coordinators are not going to be ace recruiters because they're coordinators. And it's the same thing with offensive coordinators. You've got a lot on your plate from the standpoint of game install and you know, just in general, like, like how are you coordinating your defense? So you got to be very X's and O's oriented. You're not going to be on the phone every day with a bunch of recruits. Tosh Lapoy is. Tosh Lapoy is an ace recruiter. <clears throat> he's an elite recruiter. He's shown that at multiple programs. But he's also not the guy that's completely solely in charge of the defense. Again, he was under Nick Saban. Now he's under Dan Lanning. And those guys uh, have a lot to do, a lot of say with how uh, the defense is, is going to practice and how things are going to be organized, so on and so forth. So I think... You know, there there are some some rarity guys out there like Jimmy Lake, who was a very good recruiter at Washington uh, and, and was a head coach also, which is, is unique for him. He's with the L.A. Rams right now. I think he's an associate head coach, actually, with the Rams, uh, which is which is another kind of check in his uh, boxes in, in terms of resume wise that he's coaching at the NFL level and he has that kind of responsibility um, that's always a big deal. You know, that was always something Pete could trump out there. It's like, Hey, I, I've been at the NFL level. You know, these are college guys that are talking to you about this, that, and the other. Yeah, that's great. You want to play in a college defense? Cool. And you want to play in the NFL defense? You come talk to me. Uh, I've been there at the highest level. I've coached the best players. That's hard to be on the recruiting trail. And so you do kind of think about that a little bit. Um, and um, you clearly think about the, the scheme you're running and the personnel that you can have for that scheme. You don't want to be running a two-gap defense at USC. Um, they tried that with Justin Wilcox, and it's just not you, – you, the athletes you can get up front, you want guys in one gap that are attacking, getting upfield. So all of those types of things, those, those are going to come into to, to play, and the kids that are committed right now are going to question whether they fit into that. And if there's not resolution to that uh, before they sign, then you're probably going to lose them. Our final set of questions comes from Andrew, even though I feel like you kind of touched on the the last one. But hi, Chris and Gerard, a couple of questions this week. First one, how do you rate Cole Leinart as a prospect? I saw that he's transferred to Newport Harbor, possibly to avoid getting passed over by Julian Lewis. So I'm not sure if he's able to play out the rest of the season. Is he a legit prospect with a chance to get an SC offer? Obviously, we shouldn't be taking legacies just for the sake of it, but having Matt's kid would be pretty cool. Is he more of a mobile athlete than his dad? Andrew, I have to be completely honest with you. I've never seen Cole Lionheart play in person, so I cannot really speak to him as a prospect. I've seen him walking around. He's he's tall. He seems lanky. I think he's listed at like six foot four. Uh, he seems to have good size. 
Again, I haven't seen him in person. I haven't really seen him at a camp either, throwing or what whatnot. Um, is he a legit SC offer? I cannot say for right now. All I know is that USC at this moment has a 2026 locked up in Julian Lewis. Will that change? Probably. But for right now, they have a spot filled in 2026. Yeah, and that uh, will be the case until it's not the case. If we look hypothetically at Julian Lewis reclassifying for 2025, then that becomes you know something that we can talk about with a little more uh, emphasis and probably value of the conversation. Right now, I would say no. Uh, I have seen him play a little bit, um, backing up actually for, for modern day, and seen him a bit on the seven-on-seven circuit. And no, he's not really a USC level quarterback right now. Uh, not particularly mobile. Very, very similar to his father. And his father, you know, early on wasn't really a USC level guy either. You know, he kind of developed into that. And so there's plenty of time for him to develop into that type of player. Uh, but we have to see what happens with Julian Lewis. The assumption, um, and you can just hear it in Chris's voice is that he eventually reclassifies to 2025 and potentially even with the question, there's a um, sort of underlying, you know, maybe he ends up at modern day and that's an unsubstantiated rumor. It is in fact, but um, it would not shock uh, Chris or I, if that actually happened. So that would open up the 2026 class. And um, I would say, you know, Cole is uh, stylistically different than Julian Lewis and, and much more in the vein of a, a Miller Moss. And so um, that's also something to keep in mind. USC does have another quarterback offered out mm-hmm. of the 2026 class. Someone, Chris, or Chris that you, you've spoken to and you've seen in person. Helaman Kasuga, and I really like his game. Really nice young man, smart young man, uh, poised for being so young. And he is mobile and he can make throws. And I was really impressed with him when they came out to play. Los Alamitos. So, yeah, if Lewis does reclassify to 2025, I think they, excuse me, automatically go straight into Kasuga and recruit him. And then maybe if it doesn't work out in the recruitment of him, then they would have to pivot again. But I think Helaman, who they are still recruiting for 2026, which again yeah. helps Just us. Just a little bit of a, yeah, a little indicator. Rumor, <laughs> they would feel pretty confident and in still going after him, assuming whatever happens with Lewis in the 2025 class. Yeah. I think Kasuga is the guy for 2026. So it is maybe kind of an awkward situation with Cole Leinart and Matt Leinart and, you know, Hey, you want to recruit my kid? But yeah, there Lincoln Riley knows his quarterback. So if he's making the play for Helaman, then he's making a play for Helaman. Our final question of Andrew slate is something you kind of already mentioned. I'm sure you don't want to speculate too much on the possibility of Grinch being replaced at the end of the year, but I'm curious who you think are some defense coordinators that could be good fits at USC as far as scheme, success, and recruiting prowess if they decide to make a change. DeAnton Lynn is a name I'd be interested in hearing you expand upon. Thanks for everything, as always, Andrew. I'm not in the business of speculating on defensive coordinators Right now, now that they're, they're still someone occupying that spot, I don't know what Lincoln Riley is going to do after the season. You made me make a prediction. I would say it's like 
they're going to go in another direction, direction, but I don't know. I know Lynn has come up a lot for, for USC fans wanting to swipe him away for, from UCLA across town. Wouldn't even have to move, probably. So I know he's pretty popular on a lot of lists that USC fans have been putting up right now. But I haven't had the chance to kind of look at a bunch of de- defensive coordinators and figure out which one would be the best fit. I'm not. That's not where I'm at right now. Yeah, we're anticipating that there's not going to be a move until the end of the season. So I think it's sort of like we'll get there when we get there. Um, it's a fun game there, for them to play right now. They're loving it. Yeah, no, and I understand it. I, I mean, this is something that we've been through before with head coaching oh, yeah. changes uh, and offensive coordinators. Urban Meyer, anyone? Urban Meyer, anyone? It's never probably been so obvious that there needs to be a change to the fan base. Yet there has to be a little bit of trepidation and you kind of got to pump your brakes just a little bit because there is always that possibility that uh, a head coach like Lincoln Riley, who has Carbonche, paying him a bunch of money, can just double down. He could go full Chip Kelly. And, um, you know, there were years up there at Oregon where we watched Chip Kelly with Nick Aliotti as defensive coordinator. And it was just so obvious that uh, he needed to change their defense around. And it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. And um, it took him quite a while, even at UCLA, to make a move. Um, Because, you know, you go after Chip Kelly and you hand him the keys if you're UCLA. That's That's a huge get. That was a huge, huge hire for them. And there was no, well, but we want to have say over this or say over that. It's, Chip, we think you can do wonders for our football program and turn things around for us immediately, whatever you need, Chip. And so when a coach has that ability, there's not as much pressure, you know, for him to capitulate and to make moves uh, according to pundits, according to the fan base, according to administrators, uh, he kind of is going to do what he's going to do. And so there is that potential with Lincoln Riley that he decides, you know, I'm going to go through this process and I'm going to give um, Alex another year to turn it around. And obviously, you know, it's going to it's going to be controversial to some extent, but uh, don't know how much he's really going to hear that or or uh, adhere to that at all. So with Lynn, it's ironic because you do have Chip Kelly there at UCLA who had finally made that move uh, away from his prior defensive coordinators who were not working out well for him at UCLA either. Lynn has only been there for one season. Uh, He comes from the NFL. He has been uh, a defensive assistant. He is ironically a former recruit of USC's. Uh, USC did recruit him out of high school, and I remember actually speaking to him before he committed to Penn State. And, um, you know, the son of an NFL coach, uh, a coaching family, a very articulate young man. He was uh, very smart, and um, USC really wasn't a serious contender for him. I I felt like he was going to stay on the East Coast uh, regardless, Uh, but um, was a kind of player that you go, you know, if if something you know it's not out of the realm of possibility felt like he could definitely been a player at USC uh interestingly he's gone through you know the the process of of 
kind of, you know, being a seasonal intern and being an assistant to being a, a full-time secondary coach. Uh, but he has definitely risen quickly. So their success this year, I don't know that you're just going to turn around and go, yeah, we want the guy from across town because they've got a good defense. And they do have a, a decent defense, but their defense has been playing better. You know, they got Kenny Norton Jr. over there, too, with linebacker coach. They have just gotten better over the years. And I, I think that Chip is now recruiting with more pressure. He's now, uh, and and that hasn't changed his approach in terms of porthole versus high school recruiting, but there's more pressure there to get some guys into the program. There's more pressure there to win games. You know, he's now getting closer to where he doesn't have all the 49er money and the Eagle money. And he's, you know, he's got to think about his UCLA job. And so he has gone out and made some moves and they have gotten better. Uh, because of it. And certainly Chip is a guy that is a system first guy. He's always believed in his system is going to win. It's not so much about Jimmy's and Joe's. It's about X's and O's. But I don't necessarily think this is the approach. You know, is this you just want to plug in the guy from Crosstown because he's had one good year uh, defensively. I mean, part of it is it's the first time anybody's seen a DeAnton Lynn Defense. Also, you know, we always talk about people kind of figuring out Lincoln Riley and it's not so much figuring out. It's just you're you're starting to see tendencies and defensively you're able to prepare better. And so people are still not really able to prepare for Lynn's defense because this is the first time they're seeing it. The first time you're going to see it is going to be on film the week you're going to play UCLA. So, you know, offenses are going to adjust uh, next year. I would definitely want to have more time. Um, with him as a defensive coordinator to kind of see the ebb and flow of players come and go and whether he's able to continue to have consistency and success. That would be for me. Um, and, and in terms of like a list, yeah, we don't have the list. I, I mentioned Jimmy Lake a little bit, uh, Jim Leonard. Uh, there's definitely some names up there of, of some guys that have been successful uh, longer. And I think um, you know, Lake's name comes up and is interesting just because he obviously has a relationship with Jay Cohen, who is now the AD at USC. He was a head coach and it didn't work well for him as a head coach. Uh, and he was let go and he was let go under, you know, there was some controversy there, but nothing that I would find to be an issue. And quite frankly, I think uh, his disposition is well needed on the defensive side of the ball. He's a guy that knows California. He knows California football talent. He recruited head to head against USC and won quite a few battles and developed those guys into NFL prospects. And so, yeah, it didn't work out for him as a head coach, but I think the experience of him being a head coach is good for him. I think the experience of being in the NFL and seeing top level defenses and what they're doing at that level and being able to see, I've seen it and I've coached it is good for him. Uh, I I want those things in a defensive coordinator. I, I want those attributes. I want to have some of those boxes checked. So, you know, with other, uh, potential names that might be out there. Uh, you you want consistency. You want some proven winners. Um, and maybe that's a guy that uh, has been a coordinator elsewhere, but now he's just a position coach in the NFL. You know, I don't necessarily overlook that type of guy. I am a much more of a proponent of going into the NFL and getting coaching talent on the defensive side of the ball than I am on the offensive side of the ball. I, I stay away from it on the offensive side of the ball because there's so much more time those offensive have to prepare. There's more time for the defense to prepare as well. 
But with offense, it, it, it turns into this convoluted, crazy, just very complicated thing. Whereas defense is still a little bit more, you know, see the player, run at the player, tackle the player. There's a little more involved with instincts. And you can keep it simple, stupid a little more. And so, you know, when guys like Joe Barry's name comes up and, and there's there's plenty of guys, that NFL guys, if they don't got jobs and you think you can go after them, I don't have an issue with that. You know, and again, with with uh, uh, De'Anton Lynn, there's a great example of a guy that's an NFL guy. Uh, I don't think he I don't think he coached the college level uh, before he got this job at UCLA. I think he was all in the NFL. So that's always, you know, it's a, it's definitely an ace in the sleeve that you have from uh, a recruiting thing. Um, you know, Clancy Pendergast used it. Clancy Pendergast was not a good recruiter, but he could say, listen, I mean, I coached in the damn Super Bowl. You know, these guys, these other guys that are recruiting you, can they say that? It works. It helps. Monty Kiffin used it quite a bit. Uh, now, Monty Kiffin was, was very successful and he kind of had his own name. Uh, but that's something that definitely – you don't have to necessarily be that guy that's uh, that's doing the, the, the grunt work, the, the grinding recruiting. You can just come in on the in-home visit for the official visit and sit down with these players, put them on the board and say, look, this is what we do. And, oh, by the way, this is who I've coached. This is the level that I've seen. And that in itself can be – can be big you know if you've got those other assistant coaches that are building the relationships you have this guy that kind of comes in and closes with what he's done what he's accomplished and what he can do for you from a development standpoint all right gerard that's going to bring us to the end of this episode i look out and it is kind of dark so i'm going to say we went from light to dark on but we're still episode. on the same day we're still we're still on the same day that is day. very that is very important but Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Composite Two Star Recruits. Gerard, maybe we're talking about some commitments in that next episode. Maybe we're talking about USC breaking through with a signature win for Lincoln Riley. Who knows? I don't know about the win, but I got a feeling we're going to be talking about some commitments. Okay. Okay. You heard it here from the man, Hurricane Hurricane uh, Martinez. So I am Chris Trevino. That is G-Mart. And thank you for joining us on Composite Two Star Recruits, and we will catch you next time. Jeff Leopard sucks. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. You ready, Bob? Well, right. Audiences are raving. Bob Marley is electrifying. It's the feel-good movie of the year. You dig? Bob Marley, One Love, rated PG-13. Now streaming on Paramount Plus.